Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and, well, usually with me is Cameron, but I don't seem to see him around here anywhere. Why, hello! (gasps) My goodness! It's world-famous gentleman detective, Steve Meyer Swiss! What are you doing here? Well, I gotta see what's going on in this uh, town. Oh, needful things. The town of needful things, my goodness. Uh, I've been looking to the book, and the name of the book is always the name of the town it takes place in. That is the critical function of detectiving in books, don't you know? <laughs> well, I suppose you are the detective, so you would know that. Uh, yeah, today, uh, me and Steve Meyer Swiss here are going to solve the mystery of needful things. Specifically, what the hell is going on? Well, at the end of this book, everybody kills themselves and other people, and so I backtracked reading through the book to figure out what is all in common with it, for it is a southern mystery. <laughs> a mystery in Maine, but a southern-style mystery nonetheless. What exactly is it that makes a mystery southern-style, Mr. Swiss? Mint juleps. <laughs> This Everyone is... in every page has a mint julep in their hand. I, I did notice that. It was pretty pretty interesting. Uh, I made a note of it here in the show doc. Uh, well, There's this Leland Gaunt character. Oh, that's right. And the shop that he sets up in Castle Rock only sells mint juleps. Isn't that right? That is correct. On page 433, he talks about crushing all the mint leaves. Whiddly diddly, up and down. (laughs) And then he purveys this poisonous concoction to these noble Yankees. That that is correct. No one is prepared in the Yankee world for the the deleterious effect of the julep in its minty fresh, (laughs) delicious taste. (laughs) Only me... Only I can, only I can lift the veil of gnosis. <laughs> that has ensorcelated this small town. Hey, that's, this is my bit. It has ensorcelated <laughs> these people, these fine Yankees, and their way, and their their homes, and their local uh, townspeople, all of who have one job, and uh, no one else can do it. E.g., one person knows how to sew. Also, one person went to the insane asylum, and also one person does detectiving. No one else can think, no one else in the town of Castle Rock can think empirically (laughs) by putting one and one together to make two, which is why it takes such a world-class detective such as myself to figure it out. And I have put one and one together. Would you like me to solve this book for you? Young uh, Michael. Please do, Detective Swiss. Everyone talks to Leland Gaunt and goes, Nutso. 
<laughs> That's it true. It happens for roughly 700 pages. <laughs> and then the whole goddamn thing. The, I fucking hate this book. This book is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, tr- I truly hate needful things, which is astonishing to me. Hey, hey, I'm back. It's oh, me. oh, it's Cameron. I uh, slew Steven Dorswitz. <laughs> <laughs> I was ensorcelled by by a, uh, a demon of some sort. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made me uh, both turn into him and kill him <laughs> in one fell swoop. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, man, what the hell? This is the way that people uh, talk about the Tommyknockers. Mm-hmm. This, this is really that book. This is mm-hmm. the thing that they say the Tommyknockers is. Uh, which is what? What are, what are your terms here? Nothing that happens and then a bunch of horse shit at the end. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see that. I think I'm I'm more positive on this book than you. Oh, that's interesting because I am maybe this is a road work for me. Oh, okay. This is like mm. at the bottom of the bin. Interesting. So way back uh in the first sewer special, I remember you offered up uh needful things as I don't even remember what the heck was the specific question. Um, but it was something you posited as like the the absolute midpoint of Stephen King. Um, and now we're saying that we've moved for you at least from midpoint to bottom. Did I say that as a quality midpoint or as a literal midpoint? Uh, uh, I believe a quality midpoint, actually. Well, I was wrong. Oh, okay. You know what? Uh, you know, because I haven't read this book since, uh, I don't know, I was probably 13 or 14 years old. I I don't think I've reread this book, Mm -hmm. um, at least as far as I know. And I had a lot of positive memories of it. And then I read it. And it it was like pulling my own fingernails out. Like uh-huh. it truly, uh, you know, I think in the last episode I talked about The Wastelands. I like sat and read it in two or three sittings, like bing, bang, boom, really quick. Uh-huh. This took 15 sittings and I just like couldn't sit with it. Mm-hmm. I literally had to finish it by sitting at the kitchen table with no additional distractions to like actually get through it. Mm-hmm. I this is one of the few that I would have just stopped reading if I had the chance. <laughs> if you could have, yeah. So uh, I, I I'm just I'm being honest coming mm-hmm. out the gate, but it sounds like you're more uh, positive on it. Yeah, uh, I would not say like wholly positive, but I actually probably still agree with the earlier assessment of this being very much a midpoint book. Um, this is the first book since Christine. Let me think about that. Yes. Uh, I remember in the Christine episode, I called that book like a turkey. This is also a turkey, which is to say it's way too big. Uh, There's like too much of it. I got to come up with like too many, uh, uh, you know, post facto recipes uh, to figure out what I'm going to do with all this stuff. Uh, But there is kind of a core thread of this book uh, that is something that I like and I've been I think pretty upfront about this, which is just like, I like the town novels that King writes. Um, And I think that this book has, I mean, so you already said the book is like 700 pages long, uh, just a hair over that. Yeah. Um, Just an absolute tank of a novel. And the entire first half, and this is not an exaggeration, the entire first half is all wind up. Like, you get to the midpoint, and that's when, like, all of the pieces have been maneuvered into place for things to start happening. Then you have, like, another 100 pages 
before things actually do start happening. And then there's like this very quick thing that happens where I feel like the 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 entire book is like this wind up for a, a basically, you know, a Rube Goldberg like mousetrap type mechanism for uh, making all the people in town like go nuts. Uh, and there's like this very brief moment where that's all happening and it feels like I, I'm kind of into it. Um, and then the climax, uh, well, we can talk about this in more specifics later, but basically when it has to then like reset all of the mechanism to be like, and by the way, here's what right. the Catholics and the Baptists are up to. Oh God, um, I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, just structurally just a, a fucking mess, just mm-hmm. a mess. And like, not like, oh, it's Stephen King. He's writing popular literature. It's a mess. It's, I, that is not obviously, hopefully that's not where it's, you think this is coming from dear listener. But uh, but like just uh, it's not up to par for me of his own work, I, and I think you're uh, aligning with this this with Christine. That's exactly what I thought. Like mm-hmm. to me, this is it's much like Christine and the Dead Zone. You know, like mm-hmm. we, this this is another thing we've talked about that every few years, King kind of does like this summative novel thing, and I guess it's kind of like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's it's doing quite a bit more, he d- he does this kind of summative novel novel thing where it's like here's all the different things I've I've been doing for the past four years or so, and I'm going to do them all at one time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is one of those. Um, you know, th- this is melding together a lot of stuff from his past with the detectivey kind of stuff that we've seen you know repeatedly over the past few novels. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the issue for me is it's like. The dead zone is where we saw all of those gears click together for the first time. And I think we found that really impressive. You know, mm-hmm. like what, whatever our kind of granularity on the book was, uh, I think we were really impressed with like how it all fit together in this kind of short story kind of thing. And then we, I think, even though it's a little over long and it does some like really weird stuff, I think we also thought that Christine was pretty fascinating in those regards too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, based on our uh, most recent ranking, I think Christine's like right up there for me. Um, at this point, um, but I, you know, so it's like first summative novel, it's everything clicking together. Second summative novel, it's like watching out all the things spin really well on well-oiled bearings. Uh, and this is where like the gear strip for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think he just fumbles the summative novel so much here, uh, in a way that I just was absolutely blindsided by, <laughs> like I, in my memory, this is just like a good solid book, you know, like good old fashioned King. And I, I do think, and we'll get into this in a minute. I think we see a lot of nineties King here. You know, I yep. think I said that, you know, we, I think we said that back with the dark half too. Um, and in some ways this is just a dark half sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, I say just, but you know, it is a dark half sequel, but I, I think that we're about to see a lot of what, largely for most people get remarked on as the problems of 90s king i think they're all here and Mm -hmm. i think they're all here in a big way and they might be here bigger than they are in the 90s (laughs) or the rest of the 90s weirdly enough um uh yeah i just i i found it just so painful to get through but yeah yeah uh this i mean so some context here i think um is that by king's own uh uh reckoning and I think like the, the can, can I say oh. one before we get into context really sorry yeah. I, I didn't think about this until just now go ahead uh, I I think that based on I'm thinking about it on Super Special One about the exact midpoint of King uh-huh. if we're looking at every Stephen King novel this might be the midpoint In because unfortunately terms, I think we're yeah. gonna hit a, we're gonna hit an era uh-huh. where there might be more bad books than good books for a while. Mm. 
So this might be numeratively, it actually might be the (laughs) midpoint. Um, uh, But yeah, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, so I think part of, so I, I, one, you're correct. This feels like a summative novel. Um, It's a, a, you know, and it's sort of knowingly a summative novel. This is the last Castle Rock story. Um, which is a setting that King, the Castle Rock, the town being a setting that King introduced in the Dead Zone and has revisited in various ways uh, up until this point. Um, the main ones being, aside from the Dead Zone, uh, Cujo, the novel, and then uh, the Sun Dog novella, uh, the Dark Half, that novel, and then various short stories. Uh, so the the notion that this is King, like, uh, uh, building up to the finale of Castle Rock as a setting, it clearly right he he's making some sort of change to like what he's interested in writing about or what he's doing and the novel knows this right it is written with this eye to a uh, dear constant reader who knows all of my like little uh references to past events here mm-hmm. uh so something is happening there uh but then the other thing that i think is really important is that by his own reckoning uh and i looking at the dates at the end of the book where king gives like you know when he started it and when he stopped it uh this is his first book written uh post sobriety like holy uh obviously he's been in he's been sober since like 1988 um and so he's been editing uh, manuscripts and like probably finishing manuscripts that he started when he was using. But this is the first thing that he has written and published uh, fully sober. Uh, and mm-hmm. he talks in this interview that I'll return to probably later in uh, the Paris Review from 2007 um, about how uh, he he felt pretty sensitive about the book overall. And this was the one like one of the few times he says in this interview, uh, one of the few times that he ever felt like the appellation of horror writer was a, and I'm, his term is millstone, right, around his neck, uh, because it seems like uh, we can get into this like later mm-hmm. on in terms of like mm-hmm. um, how King understands the critical reception of this book versus what I can sort of reconstruct of the critical reception. Uh, mm-hmm. But it seems like he's taken to heart some of the nastier things that were said about it. Um and he yeah. he seems to think that that like there there's a kind of misprison happening with a lot of his critics, uh, who are understanding this him as a horror writer and kind of a juvenile horror writer when he understands this book as a more sophisticated adult oriented uh, satire of American life. Yeah, we, well, we could talk about the satire question uh-huh. because uh, you and I have talked about this off mic already, and and uh, there's a lot going on here, there. But yeah, this this does seem, uh, you know, to to follow up on some conversations from some previous episodes, right? You know, we've talked about how King said that it was his final like kid novel, you mm-hmm. know, like like the the trials and tribulations of of teenagers and children will be over. And it, it's pretty hard for him to to not go back to that well, it seems like, over mm-hmm. the past few things. But I, I will say more novels have not been that than have been that. Um, and weirdly enough, he'll he'll go back to it pretty extensively, I think, later in his career. But yeah, I, I mean, The Dark Half is probably the beginning, but really this is like the, the we are in the realm of adults for adults in a horror light kind of thing, right? For a little mm-hmm. while. Um, you know, we're about to do Gerald's game. That's next. Uh, and that's like horror-ish, I guess, but psychological horror, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to hit a bunch of novels that have like fantastical elements to them and like things that are spooky, 
but they're but they're probably not horror novels like straight up in the genre it, it seems like he's trying to leave that behind in a lot of ways like you can feel it in the book so mm-hmm. uh, i'm not surprised to hear hear you say this from from a um, review standpoint or mm-hmm. not from a review but from an interview standpoint yeah yeah and so i think yeah so yeah uh, uh castle rock is going away castle rock being the setting of so many horror stories uh, mm-hmm. and i think like the the movement to sobriety is also very clear in this book uh in just in terms of the ways that um addiction and uh grappling with addiction is metaphorized across every possible axis it feels like mm-hmm. um like it's very much uh, something that is being dealt with, and then we're also seeing in kind of a uh, there. In, maybe there's two ways to put this. Uh, one is kind of like in in within the fictional Kingian cosmology, we're seeing the battle lines becoming more distinct between like what is good and what is evil, right? What is what is oh, the yeah. right? Like what is the god and what is the devil of this uh, like interconnected fictional setting? And this seems to be connected with um, a sort of spiritual awakening that king is having that king is having post sobriety right i I don't know if that's like i'm not saying that he's like becoming a born-again christian or something but it seems to me that he comes out of the process of becoming sober and is uh more interested in upfront entertaining questions of like you know a divine salvific force at work in the world versus uh uh you know, a, a an evil force, which he's thought about a lot, but it's been kind of in these terms of, um, like the the evil force is like very specific, right? That's Randall mm-hmm. Flag. It's kind of like this technocratic authoritarianism, um, and good right. has it's, o- it's allegorical, right? To like real stuff that Stephen King is looking at in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like Randall Flag's a kind of guy, right? Um, and, uh, the, the thing that is opposed to that, and we've talked about this in the episodes, uh, on the stand that it's kind of a, a very nebulous, uh, libertarian hippie-ish kind of orientation toward things. There's, there's not a lot mm-hmm. of specifics to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are seeing in needful things in particular, I think, uh, a kind of solidification of, uh, Stephen King's idea of like, you know, just the the fundamental good force that can be embodied in a human being at work in the world. And it turns out that that is a uh, uh, a soft hearted cop who loves to do magic tricks for children. Yeah, I I want to make sure this is kind of clear, too, for uh, for a listener, because I feel like this is a thing that that we'll get comments about if we don't get in front of it. Right. Like no matter what, no matter your interpretive mechanism. You know, this is just kind of repeating what you're saying, Michael, but in a slightly different way. No matter your interpretive mechanism, something happens here in 1991 with the publication of Needful Things in which Stephen King's uh, mode of writing in like the narrative assumptions that are made in Stephen King start bringing on a thing called the white. I mean, Uh just to make it explicit, right? The white is all the good stuff and it is wielded against uh all the bad stuff in the world mm-hmm. which is weirdly enough not called like the dark i guess it will eventually be the red yeah you know um but you know that we get a very explicit you know what we might call a manichaean universe out of what previously in king was a little bit more nebulous right it was a little bit more confusing about like what where does good or evil lie what's good or bad you know is it just a bunch of heroic kids up against the chaos agent that's attacking them which that's in a bunch of these books right 
Um, you know, you don't get the sense when you read Christine that there's a mannequin universe of like the good <laughs> teens versus like the the you know the wear greasers, right? Right. Like, who are tra- transformed into cars? It's just that Christine is, you know, this ambient <laughs> chaos force running through the universe, and these kids just happen to run into her, and right. it's like a problem, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, same thing with like uh, you know, I think probably the most baseline version of that is Cycle of the Werewolf, which is like. Werewolf, just a werewolf, it running around, and it, it happens to be a priest. Like, you think there might be a Manichaean universe, but in fact, there's sometimes someone's werewolf, and it kills you. Yeah. Right? Like, and it attacks you. So, so historically, within the fiction, that happens here. And historically, Stephen King oh, goes can through I add a... Sig- oh, absolutely. Go so, ahead. Uh, I think it is a really great touchstone here, because uh, we get something in it, we get the turtle, which is like right, right. this force of primordial, like creation and kind of implicit goodness but also ultimately like when they when the kids meet it when bill meets it it's like i don't know what to tell you good luck good luck fighting the ancient evil kid right yeah right right. and then it dies (laughs) right (laughs) uh and so yes so absolutely and then that gets kind of retroactively we just read the wastelands the turtle will be associated with the white at one point right so it's this kind of ambient weird thing that maybe is good right like more good than bad or at least more beneficial to humans in it, that gets over the, the 90s and the 2000s kind of rewritten into Stephen King's more, you know, kind of uh, black and white universe, right? Now, also historically, the reason I'm saying all of this is to say also historically, Stephen King gets sober. And these two things happen at the same time. Now, like the naive read of that, the like thin read of that, is that Stephen King gets sober and then therefore becomes some sort of Christianized guy or more Christianized guy and then makes all his fiction about that. And I've seen that narrative propagated all around, right? I don't know if that's true or not. Like, I, I don't know Stephen King. He's talked about this every now and again, but I don't believe, and Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe Stephen King's ever been like, I invented the white when I got sober. It just, we just know that that is the case or that it pro- pro- it pops up the most after that. Um, so so the thing that we want to be careful about, right, and, and to be clear to everyone who is listening, right, we are going to, after this episode, and probably for a very long time, talk about these kinds of maneuvers that happen where Stephen King's fiction gets aligned with a more real-world political context of a kind of Christianized and, you know, Michael, you said salvative force, right? You know, there's the, the, some sort of thing beneath the thing that will make the world better, you know, that will restore the world or uh, a force that good people can draw on to do that. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think, uh, you know, uh, one of the um, things that we often have to, like, pause and sort of point out or explain is... Uh, uh, in our shows, I think kind of generally is like, what do our methods do? Uh, this is the show where we talk the most about the method paying off. And this is maybe one of the moments where we should talk about like what the method sets you up to see or like how the method sets you up to understand certain things. Um, and Cameron and I both have the uh, vantage of foresight, right? Having read uh, most or all of the upcoming, say, decades worth of books to kind of know where a lot of this stuff goes. And so here at this juncture in 1991's book, uh, we can see uh, kind of the emergence of something that we know is going to become increasingly more central to the way that Stephen King thinks his fictional world. And, uh, you know, this may not uh, necessarily uh, correlate that strongly with like sobriety or whatever, right? We, we always talk about also like the tyranny of biography, uh, 
but mm. it does seem significant that uh, Stephen King has undergone a shift in how he is living his life and how, I mean, presumably how he is thinking about his life and what his life means and what he can do on this earth. Um, and this uh, coincides with his fiction uh, studying more seriously the idea that there could be a force of good in the world when uh, the the, you, the word you used uh, earlier was chaos, right? And we talked about this uh Oh, like in the Dan's Macabre episode, where if you kind of reverse engineer the the world picture that King seems to have based on uh, the political content of that book, uh, he thinks like the world is chaos, right? That there is, uh, uh, you know, the he he scoffs at the Black Panthers explaining systemic racism to him uh, because he cannot believe that there would be. Uh, a sort of power structure that would be that like directed right that 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 there would be and what he kind of doesn't get is like the the, the mistake he makes is that he thinks that this he takes it as like a conspiracy right that there is like uh secretly in some room a group of people who are like planning systemic racism and then like injecting it into society uh rather than a, a kind of um result of history and the ways that certain institutions are formed and the ways that they continue to operate in the world that have cumulative effects on social life um so uh, the the idea that he is now more explicitly, uh, well, and in, in his bleakest novels up until this point, uh, that has been kind of the takeaway, right? It's a, a Salem's mm -hmm. Lot where you can do every single thing you're supposed to do uh, in Dracula, except in this one instance, Dracula gets the better of you and the, the bad or yeah, the good guys like basically sort of lose out, right? Two of them, like they they live but they live by escaping um this is also yeah. kind of like Cujo, right the entire uh perspective of Cujo is that like there is like chaos in the world and there is sort of like an evil that arises from it um but it just so happens that like every once in a while all the pieces fit together in such a way that a woman and her child end up trapped for three days in a car and the child dies yeah sometimes bad stuff happens and it's really bad mm-hmm so uh, here and, we... and no and no one's hand is on the wheel, right. right? Like I mean that that is really like what makes Cujo such a great novel, right? Is that there there there's no great evil here, right? Mm -hmm. Like there there isn't some sort of Leland Gaunt, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to do it, it just happens, right? Which actually maybe that is what partially sours me so so much on this novel. Mm -hmm. The way that Cujo. I, I'll just say it. It it spits on Cujo, right? It does. Like it it by re um I don't know, by pulling that novel into this version of, you know, Kingian metaphysics, right? About the the white and everything else and the de the demonic and and the kind of satirical quote unquote whatever King's doing on here by bringing Cujo into it. I think it's like a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. It it somehow diminishes the previous work. Mhm. Mm yeah, it, uh, one of the things that this being the last Castle Rock story and the way that it handles that, uh, one of the effects it has is that, like, all of the previous Castle Rock stuff gets uh, recontextualized as kind of the slow buildup to this, right? There, there's right, It's right. in the same way that um, uh, Hubie Marston living in the house uh, on the hill over Salem's Lot and doing his, like, rituals and child murders and, like, uh, organized crime deals, right? <laughs> 
in the same way that there's a sense in that novel that all that stuff was kind of uh, laying the groundwork for Barlow to show up and do the vampire invasion. Uh, this novel doesn't, ex it's, it's not explicit about this, but it has the, in reading it and kind of the sequence and thinking about it as the last Castle Rock story, it has this effect of uh, making everything feel like a run up to Leland Gaunt coming to town and uh, wrecking everything. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, as you say, that that diminishes uh, some of the stories that have come before. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. I, I By treating, by this book, turning Castle Rock from a, uh, like, the haunted town mm -hmm. to the Overlook Hotel to a battery, essentially, right? By, mm -hmm. by kind of recontextualizing why these things happen in Castle Rock, right? From chaos to linear order leading to needful things uh with with a cutoff i mean the last page of this book they're like yep castle rock's over mm -hmm. <laughs> blew up uh i i just yeah i it really it's really it's disappointing to me um mm -hmm. ultimately yeah. um but 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 do we need to talk about what happened in the book in order to continue <sighs> talking about the book yeah it seems like i gotta do a five sentence summary yeah okay <clears throat> Five Sentence Summary is the part of the show where, in five sentences, we come up with a summary of the book that we just read. This is not a Wikipedia reading. Uh, this is something that we are coming up with off the top of our heads, and today the honor falls to me. So here is uh, the entire plot of 1991's Needful Things in five sentences. Castle Rock is a small town in Maine filled with everyday small town people. Mm hmm Their sheriff is Alan Pangborn, a good-hearted dude grieving the loss of his wife and son, as well as a lingering terror over a supernatural occurrence uh, that happened to him a couple of years ago. Open parentheses, uh, see 1989's The Dark Half, uh, dash, editor, close parentheses. Period. Period. Also among the townspeople is his girlfriend, Polly Chalmers, uh, who has really bad arthritis and a mysterious past that she spent out of town, which makes her very suspicious to many people in Castle Rock. Uh-huh. You only got two left. Yeah. You've really you've really burned a lot I, on the two characters. Yeah. Uh I mean, well the devil in the form of a man named Leland Gaunt comes to town and opens a junk shop where he seems to have in stock every townsperson's secret desire at a terrible cost. Uh, the terrible cost is everyone in town trolls each other until they all go nuts and Castle Rock gets exploded, but, uh, Alan Pangborn at least keeps the devil from keeping all of the souls he harvested. The end. Mm -hmm. That's it. Oh, is that, is that that's, all five? That, that's five sentences. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, that's it. Yeah. I mean, there's a million other characters, but, like, that's the plot of the mm -hmm. book, and... Leelingon, I've, I've determined the end of this mystery based on Leelingon's hyena skin bag. <laughs> the lease. Yeah, so, I mean, that that's it. It's, it is, a uh, 
uh, archetypal in its, uh, I don't know, a, the devil comes to town and sells people bad things. Uh, many of the reviews comment on this, that it is like creaky, right? Uh, in the sense of just being like yeah. a, a, such a, like the, the devilish merchant just being such a uh, obvious idea. And in fact, uh, so I can get into the reviews here a little bit. Yeah, it's um, just something wicked this way comes. Right? Yes, it is. So what it's, is, yeah. it's literally just a seven hundred page version of a Ray Bradbury story, right? That is uh, that a Ray Bradbury story that was written for like young adults, and this is <laughs> right. like written for adults and has a whole bunch of other grody stuff in it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, like that really is like, a, and this was its own like kind of subgenre of like. People rewriting something wicked this way comes. When I was in elementary school, I read a bunch of these books that are, you know, like some version of that book, but in a different, you know, so like, because uh, something wicked this way comes is a traveling carnival, right? Yes. Uh, and so it's like not just a carnival; it's uh, you know, the circus, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally. And like that's its own book; it's its own thing. And so that maybe is part of my negative reaction to reading the book too. Is it's just like. I got 500 pages into this, and I was like, holy shit, it really is just that other book. It's just this YA subgenre blown up to massive proportions. Really, the the problem here is not the concept. It is the proportions. It, mm-hmm. Creaky is the exact right word. Um, and, and at the beginning of the thing, when you said, you know, the first half is set up or whatever, right? I, the, the more astonishing thing is the first half of this book is set up. And then there's a little bit of resolution, and then we get another hundred pages of random additional setup that's not just the, you know, it's more people talking to Leland Gaunt. And then we get 50 pages of action, and then somehow there is more setup happening Mm -hmm. in the last 150 pages. We are still adding characters and adding elements. Leland Gaunt is giving everyone an automatic pistol. Uh Uh-huh. Like, it's just, it's such a mess. It is such an absolute disaster. It's like watching a, a, a car accident and and uh, ruminating over it over and over again for your life and ruining your life by thinking about it too much. I'm an Alan Pangborn. Yeah, it's it's uh so whereas say Salem's Lot, the first town novel, has this kind of structure where at you know semi regular intervals you kind of you you get uh, chapters with individual characters. Mm-hmm. Right. Here's what these characters are doing. Uh, you know, here's what Ben's up to. Here's what Susan's up to. Here's what Mark's up to. And then you get these ch- longer chapters called The Lot where it uh, scopes out and then you get uh, the wandering camera. Uh, here are all these people and here's what they're doing. Uh, and then we go back to here's what Ben does. Here's what Mark does. Here's what Susan does. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it scopes back out. Here is the lot. Here's what everyone is doing. And like, you know, now there's slightly more vampires around. And so uh, all those people that we saw before, we see like slight progressions in their story. There's like a a, a regularity to uh, the structure of Salem's Lot. I remarked in the Tommy Knockers episode uh, that it is a town novel without that regularity. It's doing something different. This is a town novel that I think could have benefited from some regularity i think what it's trying to do and it is not entirely successful uh in my opinion either uh like the 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 conflict between the baptist church and the catholic church over casino night like that's one of the first things that's established and it like runs through the whole book um but still like in the last 100 pages we need to step aside and like have an entire new uh uh sort of 
you know, jag away from the main plot to set up all that stuff. So um, all of the little like trickles and hints that we've been getting about it, uh, apparently just like based. Uh, here's the other way to put this. Um, I can imagine a version of this novel that has been, let's say, edited such that um, you don't have to do the jag away from the main plot to, like, actually set that final stage because those trickles that have been happening throughout the rest of the book uh, have been doing more work to set up the eventual climax. Because, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's like uh, the first half is set up. We get that little bit of payoff. Like, there's a it, like the first movement of the book ends in a, 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 a dual murder. Um, and the other thing that's wild about this, right, is that how... how uh, uh, metatextual the book gets about it uh, because Leland Gaunt is like you know this devil character and we get scenes with him by himself which are their own kind of mistake I think well we, we can talk about that um, but at that point uh, we get the scene of him uh, like standing in his shop knowing that this dual double murder has happened Mm -hmm. And he's like, ah, that was a good little test case. Now to, like, start uh, putting together, like, my other little mechanisms. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a something metatextual happening there where, like, the structure of the book is justified as, like, Gaunt testing his powers and sort of, like, his own uh, desires for how he wants to escalate these things. Um, but it's just... Uh, uh, as, as I said, I think I'm more positive on this book than you. I also think that this book could have been better. Yeah, I, yeah, that maybe also is part of the frustration is you can see some pretty clear just sometimes just transpositions, right? Just moving stuff around that would make the book uh, a different kind of book. And you're right. Look, this is just me asserting my desires over the, the book itself, right? You know, mm -hmm. that what, what works for me and doesn't work for me might not work for, you know, that's not everyone's opinion. That's okay. But like I, you can see a world in which you could make some really tactical cuts. You could cut a hundred pages out of this, mostly just of random people getting <laughs> bamboozled by Leland Gaunt. You, like truly, if you cut this down from having a cast of fifteen characters to a, a solid cast of eight, it would it would be a, a more linear read and a more interesting book. Part of the the frustration is that it just repeats. So Leland Gaunt comes into town. He creates a store called Needful Things. He is the the goddamn devil, right? Mm -hmm. Like literally. He you go into his store and he has a thing that you really want. He also is kind of like bamboozling you. I don't know why I couldn't uh, say that word. Bamboozling you and uh tricking you, right? So the idea is that he, you know, so one person comes in and she's obsessed with Elvis and likes Elvis. And so he says, here's a pair of the king's sunglasses. And when she puts the king's sunglasses on, uh, it transports her to, like, this fantasy world where she, like, is having sex with Elvis all the time. Right. And, like, <laughs> dancing through Graceland. She gets, like, a, a right. like a Graceland exclusive Oculus Rift. Right. Absolutely. That, that, but that is uh, deeply pornographic yes. in nature, which maybe also maybe that's just Oculus Rift. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but that's her whole thing. And right. And so you go in and you talk to Leland Gaunt and he, he already knows what you want in your, your heart of hearts and he gives it to you and you get what you want and it ruins your life. Mm -hmm. That That's the thing. That's the thing that happens to everyone. It, ta it takes someone's the thing that they have a propensity or proclivity for 
and then and then it extends it and it eats them in giving that to them right and the idea is that he takes your soul mm-hmm. literally i'm not joking mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that that is confirmed in the book right so it's just this uh you know very classic kind of uh you know american devil story and but and there's nothing wrong with that like structurally and conceptually it's fun you know and it's fun to hear king and see king kind of like run at this Although I think it's a lesser version of the Tommyknockers, the Tommyknockers does the same thing, although it has an output. The output is not just like, all right, we're in a devil story. The output is like, you become a hive mind of telepathic aliens, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, which to me is just more interesting. But but the problem there is not that the like schematic exists. The problem is that we see that scene, what, 12 times, 15 mm-hmm. times, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes we see the scene, King knows that you already know the whole scene, and so he just skips to the two-third point. And then you just learn about what someone has, which is kind of more annoying, honestly, because it's <laughs> like, yeah, I know. I know that someone has an object that's making them illusorily and incorrectly apprehend the world and that it's making them do stuff for Leland Gaunt. I know that. Um, it also maybe is a little bit annoying that all Leland Gaunt evil is note based. Uh huh. <laughs> it's secret note based. Yeah. In the I was thinking about <laughs> if you made this today, uh, he would have to be giving people burner phones so they could send anonymous texts. Something, yeah, it would be, yeah, it would be a hard one to hard, hard circle to square. No, it'd be like anonymous Discord DMs or something. Oh my god! Oh, uh, oh, uh, people making like uh, dummy next door accounts. <laughs> right, yeah, that that's like how you would have to do it because that really is that, that that's the whole plot of the thing. I mean, you know, five sentence summary. You only get so far, but it's really not much more complicated than that. Leland Gaunt rolls in the town, starts giving people the thing they want, and it eats their life, and in trade. They do evil tasks for Leland Gaunt, and it's mostly that he uh, either picks, uh, you know, pairs of people or triangles of people, and then has them do mean stuff to each other to drive each other into violence toward one another. And then those people show up and duel Mm -hmm. (laughs) in, like, wild ways, and it just goes on for eternity. And there's a really cool story in here. Like, I I don't like the book. I, I, I really did not enjoy reading it. But that doesn't mean there's not really cool stuff in it. I think there's great writing in this book. And I do think the Polly, Pangborn, Andy from Twin Peaks, <laughs> um, and Selectman Buster Keaton. Like, I think the, the the core characters are good. And I think that if you just cut everything that's not those core characters and, like, you know, their secondary cast, I think the book would be really, really good. Like, there's nothing wrong with this plot. It's just the way that the thing comes down is is belabored to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know where it's going from page one. There's no question. Yeah. Right? Like, there's no mystery to it. Uh, you know, it doesn't require Stevedore Swiss to come in and tell us how to do it. Like, Leland Gaunt's gonna get his. There's no question that he's gonna get his. Because um, Alan Pangborn is good and true. Yeah. He's a fucking gunslinger. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, He's he, he is a gunslinger. Uh, uh, the reviews at the time, so I'll, I'll how to con... I'll contextualize this by jumping into the Paris Review interview from 2007. Um, Mm -hmm. So the interviewer, uh, this is, you know, uh, talking about or talks about. And we've quoted from this a few times, right? We have. This is in in kind of different, mm -hmm. different episodes. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, 
here's what King is saying. And they did type me as a horror writer, but I have been able to do all sorts of things within that framework. Only once in my entire career did I feel that it was a millstone, and that was when I did a book called Needful Things. I was in a sensitive place anyway, because it was the first thing I'd written since I was 16 without drinking or drugging. I was totally straight, except for cigarettes. When I finished the book, though, I thought, this is good. I finally written something that's really funny. I thought I'd written a satire of Reaganomics in America in the 80s. You know, people will buy anything and sell anything, even their souls. I always saw Leland Gaunt, the shop owner who buys souls, as the archetypal Reagan, uh, yeah, Ronald Reagan, charismatic, a little bit elderly, selling nothing but junk, but it looks bright and shiny. Um... Uh, there's a really great thing in here. So one of the uh, this uh, goes off the interview is like, wait a minute, you know, an autographed Sandy Koufax baseball card isn't junk. Uh, and King explains because there's a the first kid who goes into the shop. The first person who goes yeah. into the shop is this kid named Brian Rusk. And he gets Man, uh, a Brian Rusk. Yeah. What a what a fucking like. Anyway, we yeah, we'll, we'll talk about sorry. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, the 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 snapshot version here is that he gets a an autographed uh, Sandy Koufax baseball card. Uh, and then, um, eventually like, you know, he's, he's forced to do like pranks on people around town, uh, in order to pay for it. This is like what Gaunt does is he has you like do things to other people. And then those people, um, apprehend the thing that you have done as being something that like someone they already have a grudge against in town, uh, uh, like did. Right. So like what Gaunt is doing is he's like. Uh, keying into the tensions that are already in Castle Rock and just like using other people to crank them up. Um, and eventually this results in the the dual murder that marks the like end of the first act of the book. And Brian realizes uh, that he's responsible for this because he was uh, helping play the pranks on one of the women. Um, and so he uh, kills himself. He, he shoots himself in the head with a rifle. Um, and before he does that, he tells his like seven year old brother who walks in on him uh, and witnesses this event that Sandy Koufax sucks. Uh, and King says, apparently uh, Sandy Koufax found out about this and got extremely angry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, he says, holy shit, was Sandy Koufax mad at me? Especially since the last thing the kid says is Sandy Koufax sucks. And then pow, he blows his head off. Koufax <laughs> said that he had tried to be a role model for you throughout his entire career as a pitcher and that he was very angry about playing a part in a child's suicide. <laughs> I tried to explain that the boy doesn't mean Sandy Koufax sucks. He means that Leland Gaunt in the shop and his whole business sucks. See, this is the only way that the character can say that this whole business of buying things and selling your soul is wrong. Koufax didn't understand. When they made the movie, they changed it to Mickey Mantle. Mantle didn't give a shit. He thought it was funny. Um... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that is that is legitimately that ma that might be the best Stephen King anecdote. It's Holy really shit, good. that's fucking great! <laughs> also, I, nothing better, truly nothing better than in Stephen King's fucking hour of need of having to pseudo apologize to Sandy Koufax that he does the exact thing that he gets so pissed off at everyone else who has ever touched literature for doing, which is he reads the thing allegorically, right? Like he's like, oh wait, it's not really Sandy Koufax, it's Leland Gaunt. I, you know, it's a it's a metaphor, yeah. obviously. <laughs> and it's like, well, Stephen, goddamn it, why are you so mad when everyone else does it? 
You big nerd. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and so that, that very good. So that's uh, that little story the, here in the middle of this part. And then the interviewer asks, what did you make of the negative reception of that book? Um, and then King says, the reviewers called it an unsuccessful horror novel, even though I had assumed everybody would see it as a satire. Over the years, I've come to think that, well, maybe it just wasn't a very good book. Um, so I. Yeah, yeah, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> I went and I read, um, oh, probably a little over a half dozen reviews that I could dig up. This was, you know, much more uh, widely reviewed than The Wastelands being from mm -hmm. like be being a mainline release from an actual major press and not like the little uh, uh, vanity thing. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, and you and I were talking about it off mic, but just to refresh people, this is part of Stephen King's deal that he what it was 89 when he signed that. Yeah, let me, let me look to make I sure. Think. I think it's 89, but it's a four book deal with Viking worth 35 million. So, you know, this is a big book. Uh, no, I'm sorry. A three book deal. Why, why did I why did I say that? Mm -hmm. um, uh, no, no. Hold on. Under 1989. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, under 1989 deal with Penguin slash Viking. King was paid at least $35 million for four books. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it was a pretty significant deal that he signs in 89, and this is one of those books. So, like, it's going to get reviewed everywhere mm -hmm. in a way that The Wasteland's being published by Donald and Grant, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I went through and I read um, a whole bunch of reviews of this book. And the weird thing that I noticed is that overall, I would not say that this book reviewed badly. Hmm. There are... I mean, it didn't review like it wasn't going over like gangbusters. People weren't like, my God, Stephen King has revolutionized his form and genre. I would say the most common takeaway from many of the reviews is like, this is a Stephen King novel. It's uh, like if, if you've read any other Stephen King books, you're going to find some things here that are familiar. And uh, if you like what Stephen King writes, there is a good chance you're going to like this. Uh, here's like what is unique about this. It's a little more funny. It's a little more clearly satirical. Uh, King seems to be playing like the devil, the devil merchant comes to a small town uh, with kind of this tongue in cheek uh, air. Right. So there are reviewers who are sort of picking up on what Steve says, uh, you know, goes missing. Um, that said, well, I mean, just to run through some of the notes I made here. Uh, so like Kirkus, for instance, really liked this book, um, uh, hmm. was pretty positive on it. Uh, but, you know, even the positive reviews are always kind of come down to like, uh, it's a little tired. It's a little long. Uh, you know, there's a long wind up. But like once things get get going, it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, you know, the St. Petersburg Times uh, out of Florida was kind of a middling review and noted especially that the novel seemed a bit crueler than Stephen King had been in the past. Uh, the Guardian said, uh, quote, it fails as horror, but works quite well as soap opera. Um, mm -hmm. The NY, uh, the New York Times had two reviews. Uh, one uh, was pretty positive. It was by um, Christopher Lehman Hopped, who actually is one of the interviewers in that Paris Review interview from 2007 I was just uh, quoting from. Um, hmm. So Layman Hopped is uh, like pretty, pretty damn positive on this book. Uh, mm -hmm. He seems to like it. And he does end it with saying like, you know, it is over long. And I felt like by the end I had eaten um, an entire bag of like cheese doodles or whatever. Um, right. Like the sort of, uh, right. uh, you know, yeah. King is there's not a lot to take right. away from this book. Right. You know, like there's not 
there are some books like Cujo we were talking about before. You know, there's some Stephen King books. You read them and you're they're kind of haunting when you're done, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of sit with them and it's like, oh, and The Shining. You know, I think part of its legacy is that mm-hmm. where it's like, fuck, you know. But that that's not I. You know, you close this book and you go, okay, what else am I doing with my time? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because uh, although I will say, final couple scenes are delightful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so then the, the New York Times uh, Sunday edition has a second review uh, by Joe Queenan, and he hates this book. And he is, like, extremely insulting. Uh, and this is uh, um, uh, similar to a review that comes out of the Toronto Star, which is also highly negative. And both of these reviews uh, share some interesting um qualities, uh, namely that they seem to come out the gate assuming that because King is a horror writer, everything that he writes is stupid. Like, that seems to be like a a, a ground uh, uh, assumption for just even how these write-ups work, right? Um, And they both make claims that, like, uh, the Toronto Star uh, uh, review, for instance, explicitly says Stephen King writes for the uneducated. Um, yeah, and Joe Queenan in the New York Times makes something, uh, makes a very similar claim. Uh, well, as someone who is overeducated, <laughs> you're wrong, Toronto Star Review from yeah. 1991. <laughs> uh, uh, Queenan's uh, thing in the New York Times actually warrants a response letter, a very uh, short response letter from a woman named Patricia Flinch of New Jersey, uh, who says that, like, I've read Voltaire and I love Stephen King. Um, and wow. yeah, right. Uh, but shout out, shout out to you, Patricia. Yeah. Uh, I've also read Voltaire <laughs> and I like Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> One of us. One, One of us. us. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, what I think is really sort of notable is that uh, in this interview from 2007, King says the reviewer, the reviewers called it an unsuccessful horror novel. And when he says the reviewers, uh, he means like these of, of the many reviews that I read. These two reviewers, it seems like, because those yeah. these are the people who are saying, like, this is a horror novel and it's unsuccessful because uh, horror novels are basically really stupid and people who like to read them are not that smart. And if you really wanted to read a horror novel that was good, you would read like some gothic novel from the 19th century, not this trash. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, that's something that we've talked about repeatedly. You know, th- this is partially when when Stephen King says some of the most wild ass things that Stephen King says, you know, that we quote on the show. Mm-hmm. I try to be pretty clear that like and, and maybe uh, sometimes based on the way the response goes, it's I'm, I'm not being clear enough. <laughs> it's clear. But like uh, it's clear to me. Um, but, you know, the, people are saying this about him since the 70s, you know, like pretty, pretty consistently across Stephen King's whole career. It's like Stephen King writes trash for trash, and uh, if you like it, you know, you're not a New York Times Sunday writing satirist, mm-hmm. Joe Queenan, right? And it's like, I, I think if I could be literally anyone on Earth or Joe Queenan, I would be literally anyone else, <laughs> like, <laughs> in a general sense, right? Like, I just, uh, that to me is like, I don't know. Being a part of, like, that universe, especially in 1991, is like the the death of interesting thought and writing for me. You know, that's mm-hmm. it, it is like the imperial core of bullshit in my mind. Uh, and I'm not afraid to say it on this podcast. Yeah. You know, like, if, you, if I'm choosing between Stephen King and, like, what the New York Times Sunday paper book section likes in 1991, it's so easy for me to make that choice. <laughs> it's, like, not even a question. Um, but, but, you know, so, you know, I imagine if you've been getting bludgeoned with that, your entire writing career, career while being extremely successful, you Mm -hmm. know, like monetarily, you might, 
um, you know, in in some ways you can like drown that with cocaine and booze, right? Mm-hmm. And and we know that Stephen King is doing that throughout the eighties. He's 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 having a grand old time uh, in the depths of addiction. Um, and, uh, you know, and he's, he's just writing away and, and he's got a chip on his shoulder. Like we've read lots of quotes on the show of Stephen King having a very clear chip on his shoulder about the way that people treat him. And I can imagine that, uh, if you came out of the throes of addiction, you know, a kind of generalized constant cloud of addiction that you'd been in for a long time and you wrote a no- novel completely sober that you thought was pretty good, mm-hmm. right? Or at least as good as the stuff you've been doing. And then you read these reviews completely sober that are like, Stephen King is dumb work for dumb people. Mm-hmm. You might, that might stick with you a very long time. Like, I, I, you know, that's just me putting myself in that condition or when that happened. But I can see that having a bigger impact than negative reviews of the, you know, whatever, the drawing of the three or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, and um, uh, one thing about these reviews, and I, you know, I don't know all the reviews that King read, but I think it's the one for the Hamilton Spectator that I read where the reviewer, it, it's a pretty negative review, uh, less kind of combative toward like the people who read Stephen King, but it opens by talking about how much Stephen King has written, um, noting how mm-hmm. prolific he is. And this is a pretty common thing in a lot of these reviews as well. Um, But I think it's the Hamilton Spectator review because I didn't make this clear in my own notes to myself. But I think it's this one um, where the uh, reviewer sort of runs through how many books Stephen King has written and how many uh, screenplays he's written and how many movies are being made based on his work and so on. Um, And then ends it with kind of this uh, sly little comment of like, given his prodigious output, we might wonder if he had his own sort of infernal assistance. Right. Um which, you know, is, is seems like a pretty clear uh, uh, allusion to uh, drug use, right? Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Either, like, knowingly, because this is something that's being talked about in kind of the literary world, or, like, as a, a, a kind of generalized, like, man, that guy must is writing so much, he must be doing some sort of drug. Um, mm-hmm. And I imagine, like, if you read that one, and you're, for, for your post-sobriety uh, book, oh, yeah. it would be... Yeah pretty pretty uh uh you know depressing um yeah so um so the you know this is not to say that like uh steven that uh interview is like he should have he should have more fairly represented his reviewers um but i think it's worth pointing out that actually there were there were uh reviewers who were picking up what he was putting down right uh mm-hmm. a lot of these reviews are like yeah this is kind of a comic novel which is not a thing that steve has done before um uh a lot of people seem to think that the uh the the stereotypicality of like the devil comes to a small town uh is like knowingly done right like the reason Mm -hmm. it is such a hackneyed thing is because it's being played as kind of just an excuse to get this stuff moving right you're supposed to understand the 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 sort of like supernatural element as part of the the goofy joke that is the whole book oh yeah absolutely i i agree with that 100 percent. like everything in here is done with a little winky wink Mm -hmm. uh i just i don't need steve to to give me the winky wink like i i I, that doesn't make the novel better for me Mm -hmm. um you know, it's like, uh, yeah, you know, when you uh, hang a lampshade on it, it's still just that thing with a lampshade on it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the the <laughs> thing is, like, uh, once Leland Gaunt is, like, getting angry and, like, literally smoke is coming out of his nostrils and ears <laughs> like he's a cartoon devil, um, <laughs> yeah. like, that in and of itself is not funny. It's just corny. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, I mean, look, I, I, I alluded to it earlier, but eventually at some point he turns into like fucking Rumpelstiltskin uh-huh. and he has he has little curly Q shoes that smoke is, and flames are flying off of. Yes. And that to me is like, this is fucking dope. This is the best <laughs> shit ever. If the whole novel were this, that he turns into like a little elfin man <laughs> who was evil, uh, I that would have been better. That yeah. would have been a better book. I mean, that that maybe is is part of the problem for me, right? Like... I it it stick it really is the repetition that I just find overbearing. But like it it isn't goofy enough. Like it could be more goofy. And if it were more goofy, please let us remember the lawnmower man, in which a, a satyr goes into the backyard and strips completely nude and just like chows down on grass. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then a animated lawnmower kills a man. Mm-hmm. Like that stuff is wild as shit. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm missing it here. Like, I, it would be better if it were here. Yeah, th- there's something about, I think, the project of this novel in particular, and this might segue us into, like, a new area of discussion, um, where the novel, uh, for trying to be a satire of, like, Reagan in the 80s, um, and sort of, like, the effects of Reagan, you know, in 1991, and, like, what does America mm-hmm. look like here, uh, f- for all its attempts to be a satire of a specific time and place, um the novel feels weirdly untethered from its actual historical moment and is sort of uh, floating in this weird cartoon, like knowing, you know, little little wink and a nudge, uh, cartoon vision of like the 1950s and um, the, the history of like novels about towns is weighing here as well, right? Uh, something like Thornton yeah. Wilder's Our Town is, is being very explicitly like referenced by the... Um, the first part of the the novel is almost like a little prologue and it's called you've been here before. And it's like a, a sort of depersonalized first person narrator addressing the reader and being like, you've been here before. I recognize you by the way you walk before I even saw your face, like sit down with me a spell here by the bandstand and uh, sort of like reintroducing you to yeah. Castle Rock and like Where that guy murdered all those women. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, so like, but but that also, sorry, oh. uh, just to say really briefly, that is actually kind of like a, a magic trick that I that I came into this novel so positive just reading that first page. It's so fun. But, well, not the not the fun part of the writing, although the the trick that gets pulled where he repeats it at the end is just brilliant. But the the Castle Rock shared universe thing, right? Like it works when the guy says, "Let's sit by the bandstand." I immediately, like two seconds, it took no time. I thought. Oh, this is where that guy killed those women. You, you know what I mean? Right. Like I remember in the dead zone when we spend a lot of time here. I remember the setting of the scene, right? And talking about where someone might come from the school and how there's a pathway here, right? Like Stephen King knows where he is starting this book for the people who have read the books, and it is such a subtle nod. And I think he actually is somewhere in there ends up mentioning the serial killer, right? Mm-hmm. Like right there. Yeah. But uh but, you know, it was like literally seeing Bandstand clicked me into it. And I was like, oh, we're in for it. And then like the rest of the book, I didn't think followed that up. But like super high point as far as like just sitting down and reading the thing. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's really effective. Uh, but it, and it shows again, like King King knows his lineages, right? He he likes to point yeah. out. Uh, and these are like, you know, typically non supernatural novels uh, from like the uh, uh american 19th century that are about like collections of characters in small towns i've talked about uh these on previous episodes um 
And so uh, mo- many of these novels uh, in and of themselves are a little bit satirical, right? They're, uh, here's, here's a picture of uh, everyday American life today uh, and the types of people that you would see in town. And so there's something about maybe the way that King is working within that lineage that means he's like sort of tipping his hat backward to that stuff a little more than he should, rather than trying to figure out uh, how this works in the present day for him. And, you know, uh, uh, full disclosure, I was like, um, just learning to walk around 1991, maybe. Um, (laughs) uh, So I don't have the greatest sense for like what the world looked like. uh, But I think Mm -hmm. things like, um, the the whole thing between the Baptist and the Catholics uh just feels a little too uh like mid-century America. Like there's something about uh uh the whole casino night thing that feels just a little bit um out of step with the time. I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah. then like the the specific characters, um Sally Ratcliffe, the speech teacher at the school, and then her boyfriend Lester Pratt, who are like super religious. They're both like super Baptist. Uh, uh they're like sort of these background characters who have their own like little plot lines and stuff. Those characters are straight the horniest Christian plot line. Right. But they are also like as characters straight up out of Pleasantville. Right. Like yeah. Lester oh, Pratt yeah. is like the school gym teacher and he's like going with his friends on the weekends to tent revivals and then like jogging back to town instead of accepting a ride because he feels so like hepped up on the good word of the Lord. So he's like jogging back to town while singing hymns to himself, um, which is like, yeah. it, you know, I'm. I'm from rural Indiana. There are absolutely like uh, religious people who kind of fit this mold, but at the same time, you've jogged back from many <laughs> tent revivals. Like this is normal. Oh my god, have I told my tent revival story on on this show? Oh god, no, you haven't. <laughs> Please. Uh, so um, again, being from rural Indiana or from Indiana in general, <clears throat> uh, we weren't allowed to have actual sex education in school. Um, instead, we had a, uh, a community-based educational program uh, called CPR, which stood for Creating Positive Relationships. Um, and this was supposed to be, you know, led by just like a, a, a community volunteers who had no uh-huh, ideological uh-huh. bias. Uh, but you can guess who volunteered to teach this sort of thing. Uh, you. Yeah, me, me. I was teaching. <laughs> I was teaching my fellow eighth graders about what we called the underwear zone uh, and how oh. you should never go there. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Interesting. And we did the the wonderful thing where you take a piece of scotch tape and you like put it on someone's shirt and it's like this is you having sex with someone and then you put it on everyone else's shirt and you see how much lint collects. Oh, wonderful. Um, Man, whoever came up with that's a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the 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 practical allegory in the world that that's like done in a group setting, irreplaceable mm-hmm. as like a like a, a cultural artifact. Mm-hmm. Like what a dumb thing, but also how rhetorically powerful. <laughs> so speaking of powerful rhetoric, uh, right. in like our eighth grade CPR class, because we had to do this, you know, like sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I think. Um, uh, we were given an assignment where uh, we had to come up with a date uh, that we would go on, um, and it had to be, like, low cost. It had to be under uh, $30 or something. I don't remember what. Um, And uh, there were certain, uh, like, guardrails on what the date could be. Uh, We could never be alone with our date. 
we could not go to the movies then, uh, even though we wouldn't technically be alone, but because we would be sitting in the dark together. Um, and we also right. couldn't go out to eat because, and this is specifically what uh, they told us, it was these uh, 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 two women. Um, uh, one of them said, uh, because uh, women don't like to eat in front of men. Okay. Oh. <clears throat> Oh, is that true? Uh, uh, well, I haven't talked to many women since, so, uh, Jeez, open it up. I've been going about this all wrong. Open it oh up to the comments. God. Let us know. Uh, yeah. Uh, Gee, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I had no idea. I keep taking women to restaurants. Like, I actually, I think I told my wife we're going out to eat later tonight. She must be so mad at me. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Oh my God! We've wow. eaten dinner so many times. Fuck. Yeah, I keep ha I keep cooking dinner. I had no idea. Uh, so we had to write an essay about a date that met all these criteria, and uh, I said, uh, in my infinite wisdom, uh, I stole this idea from the uh, the humorous James Thurber. Just just so you know, Jesus um, I said that uh, my date and I would go to a tent revival, and. We would both pretend like uh, I would pretend to be a wheelchair user and uh, my date would, you know, usher me in and we would enjoy the tent revival. We would sing along with the songs. And at the end of the, the service, uh, I would stand up and proclaim myself miraculously healed. Uh, this is what eighth grade Michael. Yes. Pitched. Yes. <laughs> like a like a terrible ableist and also like deeply disrespectful. <laughs> like <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, but I mean, I I knew who was teaching this class is the thing, right? Right, right, right. right. You're 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 being as they say a little shit. <laughs> uh and so and so I end my essay by saying and we won't tell anyone that it was all a trick and so everyone will be will leave feeling affirmed in their faith. Let me tell you, listener. <laughs> oh no. The women teaching our CPR class were not happy with me and, in fact, tried to get me, uh, uh, like, tried to make me fail my entire eighth grade health class based on this assignment. Uh, and specifically, like, she, like, she sent it back to me and she had, like, marked up the whole thing and she was like, there are no tent revivals anymore, which is a lie, right? There were, like, tent revivals every summer in our town. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, but just, oh, it was, uh, uh, you know, prime, uh, uh, little Michael shit stirring. And eventually what I ended up like, what I did is I like told my parents what I had done and they were like, well, that's just stupid. That class, like, and my parents thought the CPR class was like, absolutely stupid. I told them the stuff that, uh, like they taught us and they were like, what? Uh, and so yeah. they went in and they yeah. were like, he, he wrote everything in accordance with the assignment. Like there was like, they gave him the rules and everything he wrote fit the rules. So, uh, you should probably pass him. <laughs> and I did. Yeah. I, I will say that that's probably a big benefit in my life as well. Mm hmm. Is that anytime I got in trouble for being a little shit in some way, <laughs> uh, often it was just because I was like bored or like unhappy that I was being made to do something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, occasionally I would get in trouble, uh, you know, for like doing I, I was never a master satirist. <laughs> Like historical child, <laughs> like I said, I just stole uh, the idea from from James Thurber, who claimed that that's what his mother did at tent revivals. Uh, but uh, but but I would do that, and I would like bring home the thing, you know, like this inevitable thing of like you got to bring home the thing about you getting in trouble, uh -huh. you know, to get your parent to sign it or whatever. And inevitably, my parents would, you know, to their credit, would often be like, "What? 
what the fuck is that? What are they having you do at school? <laughs> yes. What are you doing? What aren't you? Aren't you supposed to be learning math or something, uh, listener? I was not learning math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was being asked to do the most, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, I think I, I got in trouble one time. This is not nearly as good. But I got in trouble for writing. We were given a horror story that we had to write. Have I talked about this on the show before? I don't think so. In like sixth grade or seventh grade? I mean, no, it was in the fifth grade. Uh, we were given a horror story to write, and I ended up, I'd been reading a lot of Drizzt Doe Erden novels, <laughs> and so I ended up writing like a 10-page story about getting in a rooftop battle with dual scimitars with Freddy Krueger <laughs> that was like full of like Drizzt Doe Erden style, you know, Ari Salvatore, like the, the blade entered his abdomen, you know what yeah. I mean? Like that level of, you know, for the fifth grade granular detail of murder <laughs> and, and destruction. And, uh, <laughs> and I got in trouble, like significant trouble. And uh, my parents were like, why are you in trouble? And I was like, I wrote this. And they were like, you probably shouldn't do that at school. <laughs> you probably shouldn't write your Drizzt Dorden fanfic <laughs> at, at school. So, yeah, I, I anyway, that's all to say the, the flavor of what you're saying is familiar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To me. So, anyway, yeah, like that's the type of small town uh, I grew up in, which is not quite uh, whatever is being represented in Castle Rock, which is, you know, uh, King says yeah. in that interview, this is his satire of um, Reagan and Reaganomics. And I like I can I I understand uh that right like i sort of get that i don't know how well it is implemented because i think yeah i understand that he said that right <laughs> i don't think that's in the book well it's like what what <laughs> happens in the book is that like leland gaunt and uh so this is also sort of notable is that like no one in the reviews is like well this is clearly a satire of reagan um it's like everyone yeah. understands it as a general like satire of like the idea of consumerism uh and leland well you told me it was a satire and i was like maybe two-thirds of the way done with the book and so i just started running through my head of like what is it a satire of Mm -hmm. Uh, because i don't think you said the reagan part when we chatted about it yeah and i was like what could it be and so one of them i i i'll be honest i never got to reagan i was like maybe it's the southern strategy Mm. like the nixon southern straight nixon nixonism right like this paranoia Mm -hmm. because it feels like a 70s novel right in a lot of ways uh, everyone is paranoid about everyone else. Deep down, everyone hates each other. Mm-hmm. And all it takes is a little bit of stoking the fire, you know, something like the Southern strategy, in order to blow up any kind of civility. And then, you know, in Stephen King's uh, kind of both sides political mindset, right? Like, you can you can imagine a world in which what happens in the 70s um, and what's happening around any kind of like broad disagreement and protest movement might just, you know, look like a Leland Gaunt situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like based on the way he talks about the Panthers, things like that. So I thought about that and I thought, oh, maybe that's not it. The thing I landed on and, and then I was like, oh, maybe it's it, it is this kind of 80s thing of like society doesn't exist. You know, Thatcherism, right? Like at the end of the day, pushed pushed a little bit. Everyone gets involved in the war of all against all. Mm-hmm. You know, families don't exist here, right? Like, mm-hmm. Br- wait, what's Brian's last name? Rusk. R- Rusk. Like, so his mother is the one who uh, gets addicted to having sex with Elvis in her VR goggles. Uh-huh. And uh, she abandons her family, right? You know, her kid, her one surviving child in the novel says, you know, my mom's not coming. She's hanging out with Elvis or whatever. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, she's in bed with the king. Like, which, you know, is allegorical maybe for drug addiction or something like that, too. But, you know, to me, it was like, oh, like the family units exploded. So maybe it maybe it is this kind of Thatcherism, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then I kind of got to the end and I was like, is this a satire that's making fun of Stephen King readers themselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, who are all these like little parochial people with their own little lives who think that these like fictional worlds that they live in are so important. And I'm thinking here back to misery. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking here back to the dark half, right? Like King's already kind of played with these things a little bit before of, of poking at particular kinds of readers. And these are people who buy and uh, more than anything else are caught up ideologically in believing something about their relationship to the world and the relationship to fictions for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Like I am the center of uh, Elvis's universe. I can recapture the nostalgia factor of my father's fishing trips when I was a child. I can recover my life, even though I'm thousands of dollars in debt to the mob, right? I can make good on the uh, the wealth that my family had by uh, you know recovering all the money that I lost at the track or whatever, right? These are these are people who all fall victim to like main character syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that really is the the thing that that hurts them the most is that they can't see outside of themselves and they all end up for the most part murdering other people because of it. Um, I never in a million years would have gotten to like trickle down economics or like big Reaganism broadly as the thing that's being satirized here. Right. Yeah. It, uh, uh, so like in, in the book, Gaunt is just constantly being like, well, you know, everything has a price, uh, like in that I can buy and sell whatever people love to buy and sell things. Oh, if you bought this, it should be yours. Um, and so I, I, uh, the way that I would describe, like, broadly what this thing is clearly uh, lampooning, maybe, or, or like, critiquing, um, is just this idea of, like, American consumerism. And it all has, it, it's what I tell, when I talk to my students um, about, like, essay writing and stuff, um, one of the things that I tell them to avoid in their argument is, like, uh, the Saturday morning cartoon version of uh, a claim, uh, which is, like, the something like I think is what happens here where it's like, okay, so we have Reaganomics, we have trickle down stuff. Uh, we have like, you know, the consolidation of the religious right through the eighties. Like there are so many ways you could like make this a satire. If you wanted, uh, to, you could make it specific and like deal with kind of specific things. Um, but instead it becomes a Saturday morning cartoon version of that where it's just like, Hey, did you know that not everything should be bought and sold? And that might have some bad consequences. Think about it. Wow. Right. Uh, and like the person who wants you to do that might be the devil. Uh, you know, your, your objects won't make you happy. Your nostalgia for your 1950s youth won't make you happy, whatever. Uh, but yeah, uh, because of the way that, uh, King like generalizes, uh, these characters or like, you know, is trying to make, um, Castle Rock kind of a generalizable thing for thinking about like small town America, it just doesn't feel like it has hooks in it to be a satire. It does feel like a little bit of a dark comedy, but not really a satire in the way that I typically think of it. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about some highlights here? Yeah, sure. Uh, what are because there's no there's really no point of like walking through the novel. Yeah, no, it's uh, a bunch of sort of sort of uh, short stories that are happening at. Uh, asynchronously um, and then a couple of them run together and end and then a couple more run together and end and then a bunch more run together and end. I do agree with the general uh, or, or not general, but the no, I think general. You think you said a couple uh, of the reviews 
pinged into it, but like that this is a unnecessarily cruel book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that Stephen King's cruelty, I've, I've talked about it quite a bit over the course of the show, right? Like, I think that he will often, in going for the gross out, as he calls it, I think that he just goes like 5% too far sometimes in terms of like what I thought was worthwhile of reading in the novel or like an image or a concept that like paid something off, right? Like, I am I am down to read the most disgusting, awful, horrifying shit as long as I feel like there are appropriate, I don't know, stakes for me personally, right? Like, there's no way to objectify that into, like, a system in the world. But, like, you know, like, I, if I'm going to have to sit through something awful and terrible, I I want to, like, feel a thing afterward and not just to have be an awful thing and then we go on to the next thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, you know, I think there's a stylistics to writing horrible things that uh, King is not always interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, picture especially depicting, right? You know, I've just I've seen enough like extreme art cinema to like have fine grained opinions about like what you know what what juice is worth the squeeze mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to seeing and witnessing horrible shit, um, uh, which I think is like all fair game for representation. Um, and there's a couple things in here that like really just I was like, what the fuck? Like Brian killing himself, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, in this like belabored Hemingway style, right? Yeah. You know, this like ritual gun in the floor through the mouth in front of his younger brother. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a plot critical child suicide. You know, it, it's infrastructural child suicide because it's the only way that Alan Pangborn breaks the case. Yeah. Like literally one guy moved to town and then everything blew up and Alan Pangborn had to go interview a child and do magic tricks for him to figure it out. And it's so weird because uh, the entire plot of the dark half is repeated here through uh, Alan Pangborn's interior monologue in like the first third of the book. So like the the, the thing about Alan Pangborn that's kind of odd here is that... uh, he is he he is himself a kind of stereotypical character where it's like, OK, here is here is your protagonist. He's some sort of like, you know, good old guy. He's in this case a cop. And this is not, uh, you know, uncommon, I think, for this type of character. Um, his wife and son, uh, he has two sons. One of them's like off on Cape Cod because uh, uh, they're kind of growing apart because his other son and his wife died in a car accident. And it turned out his wife had a... Um, pretty severe brain tumor uh and he's Mm -hmm. racked by guilt because he didn't really like press his wife enough uh to like go to the doctor and he's like uh you know did she like have a seizure because of the brain tumor is that what made her crash or did she like have a momentary like psychosis and like crash the car intentionally and kill herself and our son uh you know just all these like you know something awful happened and he cannot know uh what it is that what fundamentally happened and he is haunted by this it's great. Yeah. I all of the Alan Pangborn interior monologue, all the stuff with Polly too that falls out of it. Like that if you could excise that 200 pages, that would be its own great book. Like that would be a top-tier Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. Um I do I am I am the smartest investigator in this little corner of the world and I will never know why and how my wife died. Mm-hmm. Like it that it, it, it's so good and the writing of it is stylistically head and shoulders above the rest of this book. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, sort of in, in your typical uh, form of this story, um, the investigator haunted by some sort of past uh, trauma uh, encounters a new situation. Uh, and then in solving that new situation, you know, resolving it, however, uh, uh, befits them, um, that provides a kind of emotional catharsis and like a point of moving beyond the thing that has been haunting them. Right. Uh, uh, right. Textbook right. stuff. 
Yep. The, the the wrinkle here is that Alan Pangborn, beyond his uh, dead wife and kid, also has like this additional thing that he's being haunted by. The reason he was not uh, he feels like he wasn't paying enough attention to his wife and her health issues was because he experienced the events of the dark half and was like, <laughs> holy shit, what was that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like, what world do I live in? Uh, like, I saw a, a, a weird devil doppelganger man who was falling to pieces get carried away by sparrows. And I don't know what to do with that. Uh, and then he also, like, we get some updates on uh, uh, that whole situation. It turns out Thad and his wife uh, did not stay together. That Thad uh, uh, declined significantly after the events of the Dark Half because that book ends on kind of a like the the situation is resolved, but it ends on kind of a dark note vis a vis their relationship. Yeah, um, uh, jo- George Stark's in there. Yeah. Uh, so like we get that full recap of like what happened in the Dark Half in the first third of the book um and then it just sort of disappears and like the 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 family stuff takes center stage which makes sense but it also uh doesn't quite uh uh scan in terms of how long it takes uh alan pangborn to think like you know i saw i saw a ghost get carried away into the sky by a cloud of sparrows (laughs) i wonder if this one man who moved to town uh, might be some sort of supernatural thing, right? There, there's like this implication that uh, uh, at some point Alan was like trying to reconcile his like perspective, like you know, what is his perspective on the world with kind of the the supernatural stuff that he's encountered, and that really just mm-hmm. falls out. Yeah, and it's really interesting, <clears throat> which is so disappointing, right? Like it, you can see a different, slightly different novel that that w- was a little bit more consistent with this if it spent less time talking about the Baptists and the Catholics. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's interesting too that King has kind of like gone back to this a little bit, mm-hmm. um, you know, because isn't this kind of the the core of the is it Holly Dibney? I I I know that those are books from the future, but I haven't read them. I mean, so she's a character that shows up to, like, help solve some mysteries across a couple of novels. I haven't either. I, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I've seen The Outsider, but I haven't read that yet. But, you know, so he brings another, like, person who's a little bit attuned to, like, what's up, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, in the paranormal universe. Um, I like that. I like the idea. I, I, I think this is the better version of King shared universe stuff. Mm-hmm. Is characters who appear in different stories as opposed to, you know, the the dark tower kerfluffle that we're going to barrel into over the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think this works better in that way, yeah. but, um, Alan is now dating a woman named Polly. Mm-hmm. Polly has severe arthritis in her hands and is basically becoming a drug addict, trying to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing she is offered in order to deal with that, it's like a little amulet and it cures her. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of betrays, Alan in the very late hour, but then also like there are basically like four people in the in the town that are smart enough to not get Leland gaunted, uh-huh. you know, get gaunted. Uh, and uh, she's one of the people who's smart enough to like degauntify herself to 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 unbamboozleify herself. Um, because she has a pretty interesting story too. I think this is a you know we've talked about over the past few novels that King has gotten a little bit better about writing women mm-hmm. and, and thinking about women as like whole people. 
Um, you know, it, it took the whole 80s to get there, but but we eventually got there. And I think that Polly's a pretty interesting person, although, you know, well within the tropes of of King's universe. You know, I don't think there's much surprise here. But, uh, you know, pregnant, decides uh, not to give the baby up and goes to San Francisco, leaves Maine. Mm-hmm. A shocker for a Stephen King character. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, her child dies in a fire Yeah, and she kind of tells everyone she gave him up instead. She's got this kind of secret, you know, that, that where she holds that maybe the child is out there somewhere and she's not, or he's not, which I think is a pretty compelling story. Oh, the thing I want to say to you really quickly about Thad Beaumont. Uh Uh-huh. It's really funny that there are so many Stephen King analogs in the Kingiverse at this point uh-huh. that cr- that Maine's kind of getting crowded with famous writers. Yeah, we got at least two of Dude, them here. <laughs> yeah, we got two, we got two, and I was like, ah, you know, how many Stephen Kings can one Maine have? Uh-huh. <laughs> two is kind of pushing it, and we're gonna end up with more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because the well, we haven't even talked about it, but Ace Merrill shows up here, so we've got Gordy Lachance being referenced uh, in the yeah, game. Yeah, unless you got something to say about Polly, we can just kick over to Ace. Uh, Ace has probably got one of the more interesting bits. Yeah. Uh, so just some uh, uh, top level observations about Polly. Um, sure. Uh, the little uh, necklace that she gets from Gaunt that uh, in the text is called an Azka, and he says it's like an ancient Egyptian thing. I looked into this. As far as I can tell, this is not real. This is a thing that King made up. Um, huh. just for the record, uh, but it's like a little silver ball and there's like something inside of it. And, uh, it turns out it's uh, a little spider that becomes a giant spider and she has to kill it with a toilet plunger. But, mm-hmm. um, yep. And it bites. Yeah. Her. Uh, uh, but the, the whole thing, I think that that comes from the, uh, uh, here's, um, a little silver medallion or whatever that you're going to wear. Uh, that seems like a pretty direct lift from Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby, where um, that's one of the things the Satanists do to Rosemary is they give her a little uh, charm that's filled with uh, tannis root, which is a thing that Levin made up, but uh, is basically like a, a magical Satan herb um, that, you know, makes her satanic pregnancy uh, uh, continue to chug along. Uh, and I bring this up or like, you know, notice the the parallel or the lift because of the way that Polly's story is like intersecting with a uh, uh, a lot of like pretty uh typical uh issues or or sort of um I mean so Rosemary's baby obviously Rosemary gets pregnant has has a baby it's the devil sorry for spoiling that if you haven't read it um, ah. uh and Polly uh the movie's different though right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but Polly, uh, you know, uh, gets pregnant, leaves town, but then like has this absent child, right? So, uh, her kind of like, uh, uh, lack, like her, her guilt over having left her son at home with a babysitter, um, who was, uh, she suspects or finds out, uh, it's unclear, you know, if this is like speculation on her part, um, uh, was like a drug user and like passed out and then that the, the apartment burnt down and that killed them both. Uh, so she has a lot of guilt that she was like out working and uh, instead of taking care of her own child and everything. So she has the the absent child um, and uh, the uh, thing growing in the amulet, the giant spider is sort of positioned, you know, symbolically by the text is this kind of a. Uh, uh, you know, monstrous pregnancy, right? The 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 spider is uh like the the embodiment of like the secret that she's keeping from everyone in the town, right? This uh this mm-hmm. thing that she is carrying to term that is feeding off of her. 
Um, right. It keeps getting bigger. Uh-huh. Like in front of her, she can see it getting bigger. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, that's interesting because uh, like the way that Gaunt uh, uh, frames all of this with her is that like she didn't give up on her pride, right? By not telling anyone what happened because she hasn't even told Alan the full truth. Uh you know, she has not given up on her pride. And so he says something like, you know, oh, I've always, uh, 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 how does he phrase it? Something like, you know, I've always, uh, uh, had really good relationships with proud women or something, um, which, uh, is very biblical. It's, uh, uh, we'll talk about this later, but like, uh, Gaunt is like the biblical Satan and he's also something <laughs> yes. else. Uh, so like here, yeah. there's the, uh, uh, the, well, he's also a little goblin with the uh, pointy toed feet. Right. Shoes. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, I've always, um, had good relations with, uh, uh, prideful women is the, the, uh, one of the traditional understandings of Eve in the garden is that she eats of the fruit of knowledge at the serpent's behest because she is prideful. And this means all women from that point forward are prideful and need to, uh, work on their pride. Um, Pride goeth before the fall, Michael. Right, and so she. What if uh, can I can I pitch something? <laughs> Go to ahead. Leland Gaunt sounds like this. <laughs> Pride goeth before the fall. <laughs> Uh, that would be really interesting. It would uh, raise a lot of questions as to why so many of the women in Castle Rock think he's hot. Um, unless I, you're telling me that's not sexy. Uh... You're telling me the Manhattan's not a sexy guy. <laughs> There, there are hundreds of people who, you know what, sound off in the comments, let us know on Discord, tweet at us at Range Touch if you think the Mad Hatter's a sexy guy. <laughs> Classical cartoon Mad Hatter, too. Yeah. No no, no cheating with live action. You, uh, let us know. Sound off. Yeah. All right. Anyway, sorry. So anyway, like th- those are just some like observations I want to make about Polly and... Uh, how how that character works here um you know i'm not like trying to like smash steve for uh digging into basically old biblical misogyny i'm just like highlighting that it's there i think uh you know it's it's like a stereotypical it's it in the way that many things in this novel are it's a it's a creaky uh plot device uh that uh i think ultimately maybe makes me less into the way that polly's story is handled because as you say i do think that the Mm -hmm. um Sort of the big picture thing is pretty interesting, right? This woman who, like, left town, has a secret, uh, and comes back, and that secret just kind of, like, grows with her. And then, um, mm-hmm. you know, I-, I think that that's well done. Just the the sort of... The other way to put this is just making Leland Gaunt, like, the biblical devil, or, like, having him make little jokes that suggest he is the biblical devil is just so corny, and it makes yeah. the whole thing less uh, fun. Well, it, like, writes him into a corner in some ways, right? Yeah. Because, like, once you make him the, the biblical devil, you get a bunch of stock things that have to happen or stock interactions that occur. And, like, what's interesting to co- about Polly for me is, is exactly what you're talking about, right? Like, the big schematic, like, the story beats are interesting, and they are story beats that King hasn't really delved into too much before. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so, I, I you know, part of about this show is, like, Part of the fun of the show is like, well, you know, what's Stephen King doing that he hasn't done before? So, like, that to me is really good. And I really like the character writing of her interior monologue where she's explaining, you know, like, it took years to get on, like, um, you know, to get, uh, like, food stamps. I, I forget. There's a more precise term that gets used here. But, like, it took a while to get on food stamps and she figured it out, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's this kind of thing. And so, but, yeah, no, like, the framing, what what the broader novel has to do to every character here is fit them into 
some really tired, mostly Christian uh, story trope stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the process, the plot process that Polly has to go through sucks. Like it's just not interesting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and that's partially why this book was so, so much of a slog for me is as soon as Leland gaunts the devil and as soon as you got a prideful woman, I know exactly what's going to happen here, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Either, or I guess one of two things could happen. She is consumed by that or she throws it off, right? Because within the uh, kind of Christian view that the novel kind of takes up here, the Christian storytelling tradition that takes up here, right? Those are the only two paths. The only two paths are are, uh, the grace of self-knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, recognizing that there's a higher power that will help you do the thing the white has come, Michael, uh-huh. or, uh, or, you know, being consumed by it. And that's like most other characters, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, um, uh, the, uh, messianic worldview only gives you two outlets, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, hell on earth or, uh, the, the, the coming resurrection. Right. right. And like, yeah. So, so no, I agree. I, and I guess I write that up more to like, a broader conceptual failing of the novel than with her yeah. specifically, but you're right. You know, it, 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 there's not a single woman in here that is not, uh, schematically the byproduct of like a shitload of just boring misogyny. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, especially fat women who love Elvis, yeah. Jesus Christ, you know, like, uh, Stephen King's fat phobia continues to trundle on down the path of absolute idiocy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and we get women who are like too obsessed with media, Specifically, Elvis, mm-hmm. um, which for 1991 is still around. Like that, that there is still a generation that really is holding on to Elvis. I remember in the 90s, my grandmother like constantly still talking about Elvis. So like that to me doesn't feel too much like a previous time. Although in a practical way, that also gives it this kind of 70s and 80s vibe, right? right? Of like the the a certain generation of women's absolute beginning and ending of attraction being Elvis is, is a it places it in a time period. I think a little before 91 mm-hmm. um, for, for that to be a thing for mothers and not grandmothers, maybe yeah. I guess is, is, you know, the kind of feeling there, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, so, so those things happen. Do you want to talk about Ace Merrill? Yeah. Ace Merrill from uh, the body comes back. Uh, and you know, uh, the, the 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 big meanie bully from the honey drenched uh, nostalgic romp of serious literature uh, has done <laughs> his turn in Shawshank, the Shawshank yeah. Penitentiary, and yeah. now he's here to uh, become the right hand man of the biblical devil, and then get shot by Andy from Twin Peaks. Yes, uh, and uh, Alan Pangborn sent him to Shawshank too. I like that yeah. too. That's a good. That's a good little thing. Uh, you know, Bannerman couldn't do it because Bannerman's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alan Pangborn took care of the the big bad in town, and now he's back for revenge. Uh, and yeah, Andy from Twin Peaks shoots him in the head. Yep. That, that's the other thing I guess we haven't said is that clearly this is trying to work some Twin Peaksiness into yes. it, and I think that partially is the big character cast. Uh, I you know Kinga's doing that before obviously, but I I feel like there's a kind of soapy granularity to those characters, soapy kind of complication to them, um that that feels very Twin Peaks. It feels like he watched Twin Peaks and he was like, yeah, we can I can do that too. Yeah, um my small town novels can be like that, and we're not making that up. The novel explicitly says he is Andy from Twin Peaks. Right. The character's name is Norris Ridgwick. He's uh the deputy to Pangborn and uh. He is described in 
always that matter as being like Andy from Twin Peaks, except he's also compared to Barney Fife from the Andy Griffith show. Um, and but, yeah, people who don't like him call him Barney Fife, but I I forget who describes him as Andy, but she I think yeah oh, I ahead, think so. it's the dispatcher in in the uh, sheriff's office. She's like, yeah, you're just like Andy from she, Twin Peaks. Yeah. Sheila, maybe, yeah, Sheila, Sheila Brigham, I think. She's fucking great. Yeah. She's cool. Oh man, there's a scene where you know I just want to mention it really briefly. There's a scene later on where one of the deputies is getting like beaten to death by a man, and she you know grabs a shotgun. And uh, clobbers that guy, and he turns into it, and he gets his face caved in, mm-hmm. and it's pretty fucked up. But then, so she's holding a gun. Mm-hmm. You know, this is great Stephen King writing, too. She's holding a gun, and Norris and uh, the sheriff come in, uh, Alan Pangborn, they come in, and Norris is so scared that he is going to just blitz her, right? He he sees someone with a gun, uh, you know, I don't, whatever, reflex kicks in, some bullshit, and he is firing an Alan Pangborn because his reflexes are so quick like a cat. We're told that over <laughs> and over again. He bumps it with his elbow. He doesn't even reach out to stop him. He just pops it. He, like, dodges over and pops the gun with his elbow and makes, you know, uh, uh, Norris fire wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so cool. It's what a good scene. But kind of buried in a novel. Yeah. And the the detail about that... Uh, uh, that I like that you missed is that she pulls out that shotgun. She's going to shoot the guy who's beating up the other sheriff's deputy. And then she realizes if she fires, she'll probably hit them both. So then she just flips it around and that's when she swings it at his head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause she's like, John, get away from him. And she realizes he, he is not going to get away from him. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like he is fucked. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, anyway, sorry. Yeah. So, sorry, going back to Ace Merrill. Uh, I love the Ace Merrill sections. Yeah. I think they're great. I would say, uh, interestingly, I also read this book before, you know, when I was 12, mm-hmm. 13, something. Um, and the things that I have remembered the best, I was sort of surprised to discover, apart from kind of like the, the really gross stuff about like the ways that like fat women's bodies are described and like their sexual desires and things uh uh and like the you know the kid shooting himself in the head like the the really gross stuff that sticks with you um but like the actual plot stuff or like character stuff that really stuck with me um was for some reason basic well actually polly quite a bit um but ace merrill like ace merrill was like my clearest memory of this book like over the past couple decades and i was so surprised uh, coming back and reading it to realize he does not show up until the halfway point. Maybe even, maybe even further. Yeah. Like new, actually numeric past the halfway point mm-hmm. easily. Uh, well, I, you know, I think we talked about in earlier, maybe with stand by me, I totally forgotten that Ace Merrill was even in the book. Mm-hmm. I, cause I think I read this before I read stand by me and I just didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't, uh, link them together or maybe I just forgot. I don't know, but I totally forgot he was in here, so all of this was actually kind of surprising to me. I did remember Magic Cocaine, but I didn't remember who's Magic yeah. Cocaine. Oh, yeah, was. Ace Merrill is not just back. He's also a cocaine addict now. Um, so And a cocaine kind of dealer. Uh-huh. And an arms uh, dealer. Gun dealer. And an arms dealer. Ace Merrill, local arms dealer. Uh-huh. Uh, rural Maine arms dealer. That's my new Adult Swim series. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I, I just think it's cool, right? Like it's, he's someone who's like the baddest badass that ever rolled around town Mm -hmm. and he meets the literal devil and becomes like a little punky boy. Mm -hmm. Um, and look, it's, it's a tried and true trick. Stephen King's already done it. It's what's his fuck from it. Uh, uh, Henry Bowers. It's Henry Bowers, right? It's like, let's get the boogeyman from some other time. You remember the boogeyman? Mm -hmm. We'll bring the boogeyman and he'll come be like the hit maker, the little sidekick. Yeah. 
Like, it's not particularly, you know, uh, big schematic-wise, not particularly interesting. But, like, the writing of Ace Merrill's good. I like hearing him talk. I like thinking about with him. I like his, like, I don't know, man, like, shit. Uh, it's not where I could be. I could be in prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and also that, that he got scared. At, his, his issue is that he owes Coke dealers a lot of money, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's that's his big thing. That's how Leland Gaunt gets his initial hook into him. He owes him a bunch of money. And uh, he is going to sell his guns. He's got some, like, big guns. He's, this is six months ago or something. He's going to sell the guns, and he goes into the bathroom after talking to a guy who's going to buy the guns and give him cocaine. And he goes into the bathroom, and a guy... he And he's going to snort some coke in a stall. And a guy who's using the urinal just says, Hey... Those guys you're talking to, they're wearing a wire. And Ace Merrill gets spooked and goes out the back door, and he can't ever do another deal again. He's so scared. And uh, there's a wonderful parenthetical, you know, a narratorial voice stepping in, right, in the middle of Ace Merrill thinking. You know, it's a wonderful kind of Kingian moment of like, who is speaking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, what? how is this information being conveyed to me? But it doesn't matter. You know, it's just purely organic. It really is his talent as a writer. And he just says... Ace Merrill never really thought about if that guy was just like fucking with him. Yeah. He never thought about that. He just, he got so spooked in that moment. And in this novel, King reserves those parentheticals for um, kind of gaps in people's thinking that mostly have to do with Leland Gaunt, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, he never stopped to think about blah, blah, blah. That happens a few times in the novel about talking about people using the fishing pole or using the, the Elvis glasses or whatever. And so there's there's this great ambiguity of did Leland Gaunt set Ace Merrill in motion four months ago mm-hmm. in order to get Ace Merrill here in Castle Rock on this day to get him to be his little assistant. Right. And it, it's just a great like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Steve, you got me. Yeah. I love it. No, it's so good. Uh, yeah, Ace Merrill shows up. Uh, Pop Merrill, his, was this his uncle or was this his grandfather? Uh, I think it's his uncle. I don't remember. Um, I think it's his uncle. Too. Pop Merrill from the Sun Dog uh, was his uncle. He died. He got uh, uh, mind controlled by the Sun Dog and then eaten by it. And then they burned down his little yeah. shop. Um, yep. Uh, he comes back to town. One of the things that everyone knew about Pop Merrill or like believed about him, at least, was that he was the richest man in town and he had like all of his money saved up and hidden away in various places. So Ace comes back to town and his main desire is to sort of poke around and figure out if he can find out where Pop uh, hid all of his money, because in Ace's mind, it's rightfully his anyway. And plus, also, he needs it because he's got uh, the Italian mob breathing down his down his throat. Uh um, right. Uh, and, and you know what? It's literally the Boston mob. Oh, is it? Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, so. I'm pretty sure it's the Boston. I mean, mob. probably like I know it's uh, 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 they're like called like the Corsico brothers or something. Um, yeah. Anyway, are they? Oh, wait, are are they from the Dark Tower? No, I don't know. I'll keep an eye out for them. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, you know, he, he basically he owes some dangerous people money. And so he would really like some money to pay off the dangerous people. Uh, he meets Leland Gaunt, who gives him a book that appears to uh, be a like a book book on treasure hunting written by Pop Merrill, uh, and it contains mm-hmm. a map that appears to be in some sort of code that uh, shows various locations around Castle Rock and environs. 
uh, where Pop Merrill might have buried uh, all of his treasures. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's how uh, Gaunt basically gets uh, Ace on his side. Um, And then he sends him into Boston to pick up his car and a shipment of some merchandise. Uh, And this is where uh, the Gaunt gets a little weird. So he is not only the biblical devil, uh, but he is also some sort of Lovecraftian entity. Um, Mm -hmm. Because Ace goes into Boston and actually technically he goes to Cambridge. Um, and he goes to a street called Whipple Street, which uh, I double checked and I don't believe actually exists in Cambridge. But it's worth noting that uh, Whipple was the surname of H.P. Lovecraft's grandfather. Um, hmm. And he goes to a uh, like it's like a it basically it's like a, a slum area. It's like totally deserted. He doesn't see anyone else. He feels like it's super creepy. He finds this like cinder block garage where there is no one else. But when he honks his horn, uh, the garage door opens. And uh, there's a piece of uh, graffiti on the garage that says Yog sothoth rules, which is uh, Yog sothoth is a, a Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos uh, entity. Um, and also when he, uh, uh, Leland Gaunt gives, uh, Ace magic cocaine and when a- it's like really, really good stuff. And when Ace asks, <laughs> asks where it, fr- where it's from, uh, uh, Gaunt says it's from the plains of Lang, uh, and yeah. Lang is another Lovecraftian, uh, location. Um, yeah. so, th- uh, there's all this stuff going on. Ace, uh, drops off his car, picks up Leland Gaunt's car, which is called a, uh, uh, uh a talisman um what's the make uh it's another thing with a t yeah i don't i don't remember it's, uh, it's uh like a, a i didn't write it there down. was it's like a, a a sort of um car that they, they were an actual make of car in like the 50s they made like one type it was like a, a really weirdly designed uh and then the they went out of business Um, And so Ace recognizes sort of like the make, but he's like, I've never seen this particular version. And Leland Gaunt tells him that it's like one of a kind or whatever. Um, But anyway, the car is also weird because it travels like faster than a radar can clock it and also doesn't need gas and appears to be alive in some way. Uh, And and it won't let people touch. Yes. Which is really great. It's got like uh, the the distinctive thing about uh, the particular model of car that it's based on is that it had three headlights. And uh, there's this great moment where Ace is driving at night and he realizes that when he turns the wheels, the like headlights appear to turn as if their eyes like, you know, searching, like looking back and forth. Um, But uh, uh, he also picks up the merchandise, which turns out to be a bunch of blasting caps and a uh, an entire crate of automatic handguns that Leland Gaunt proceeds to then, like, give to everyone in Castle Rock for the big finale when people start going nuts and, like, shooting each other in the street. Uh, yeah, you can't magically summon a handgun, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to transport physically a handgun. Also, the handguns have, like, a magic otherworldly poison. And they are also, like, not, like, a real gun. Mm -hmm. Like, they're some sort of, like, uh, mid-world-esque, you know, like, slightly from from a world, you know, one door over kind of vibe. Right. There's, like, an arms... Because they can't identify them. Yeah, there's, like, one of the cops who is, like, investigating all the shit that's going down in Castle Rock is, like, he's a guy who knows, like, every type of gun. And he's, like, well, it's got this part of this gun, and then it's got this part of this other gun, and then it's got all this shit that I've never seen before. Mm. He's a walking shooter's Bible, they say. Yeah. I remember that. Uh-huh. Uh, 
So that's kind of like what Ace does. Uh, and then the other thing that, uh, the, the other part of this is that um, Gaunt is setting up Ace to take out Alan Pangborn uh, because Ace goes around to various places uh, and digs up the... He, he locates the things where uh, Pop appears to have buried his treasure and digs it up, and it's all just junk. It's like uh, stamps that have no uh, redeeming value anymore. Like, you know, uh, uh, like at one point prior to like this, like one of them is I think it's like Confederate stamps that just like couldn't be redeemed for anything after like 1964. Um, and uh, like uh, uh, gross pornography. Uh, it is all he finds. Uh, but Polly. Uh, yeah, he finds a, a image of a woman having sex. A bunch of images of a woman having sex with a dog. Yeah. Uh, that's actually Polly who finds. Oh, that's that. the one that Polly finds. Yeah, because yeah, right. part sorry, of her thing is she digs up one of these, and it's at uh the uh the Camber place right. from Cujo. And this is another like weird thing where I don't know exactly what to make of it or what's going on. But like the fact that Polly goes to the Camber place and then she finds like those images of um bestiality with a dog there's it feels like that's not accidental like i don't know if like king is trying to do some sort of commentary about the salaciousness of his own work or something there i don't know no i i think that it's a uh like the way that i took that is that one uh uh i don't i don't think that these are actually by pop merrill okay like the like, I don't think these pre-exist Leland Gaunt. I think the whole thing is Leland. Oh, Gaunt. okay. And so, like, I think that Leland, it's just a king. Uh, you know, in the same way that Randall Flagg does this, in the same way that Pennywise does it too, right? Like, this is a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, like we know where we are. Okay. Here's the gross out version of this thing. I I think that's what right. it is. Okay, yeah. that makes that makes sense. Um, so she digs up one of these, th- and it's like a gross. It's a gross joke yes. too, right? Like, she really got fucked by that dog. Uh huh. Right. Right. Uh-huh. I I mean that's Leland Gaunt up and down, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh uh but it sucks. Like it sucks and is stupid. And uh and it ruins uh or you know, retroactively colors the I don't know, severity of Cujo or the kind of interestingness of Cujo by eating it with this like castle rock device mm-hmm. and Leland Gaunt. The idea that Leland Gaunt kind of controls the legacy of Cujo here sucks to mm-hmm. me i think i think that's a, it does a disservice to that other well novel. and we're, we're, we can talk about uh, uh the final confrontation here because there's a weird way in which the novel then tries to walk that back um yes uh yeah. but yeah so polly digs this stuff up and then she burns it and then she leaves a letter that gaunt gave to her because this is uh to touch on what we said earlier like 99 percent of what people in castle rock end up doing for leland gaunt is uh leaving letters for people <laughs> in various places <laughs> right Right, just leaving rude notes. Yeah. Uh, you Baptist rat can, can, fuck. Can, uh, can can I read you a thing really quickly from the villains wiki? Sure. So I was I was looking for the the uh, you know the car thing. I can't find it. It's it it's somewhere. But I was I thought maybe it'd be on the villains wiki. So this is misspelled. Leland Gaunt is misspelled here. But Leland Gaunt's other quote because they're like combining the the film and the book in this uh, page. Yeah. Leland Gaunt's other quote, kill them all, let God sort it out, is based on a co- quote from Arnaud Almarik. In the movie what? Doom, which is based in the movie <laughs> Doom, which is based on the popular video game series of the same name, Sarge's other similar quote, we kill them all, let God sort them, was mentioned. Uh, uh, there you go. Uh, Leland Gaunt and the Sarge from uh-huh. Doom. Basically the same guy. Yeah, basically. Um, oh, it's the Tucker Talisman. 
there you yep. go. Uh, and I don't remember again what the actual like car that it's based. It's the Tucker something, and it's another thing with a T. Uh, I want to say Toronado, but I know that's not right because that's what uh, George. That's that was a real car, and George Stark drove right. it. Um, but anyway, right. yeah. It's, oh, when Alan Pangborn has that like fantasy or worry that he's going to see a car with a uh, high tone son of a bitch. Oh it. yeah. <laughs> like early, I was like, yeah, that's right. Come on, bring him back. <laughs> bring the guy back. Bring George Stark back. That's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, apparently Tucker Talisman might have been a real oh, car. Really? The Tucker Forty Eight is the original car, and the Tucker Talisman appears to have been. I'm just looking at like some like uh, car enthusiast website. Uh, it's the Tucker Forty Eight, and the Tucker Talisman was a planned sportier version of it that actually was never released. Okay, it looks pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I'll send you a picture here. Yeah. Uh, so um. Uh, uh, you know, Polly does that thing. Uh, Ace eventually digs up that can, and then he he realizes before he even digs it up that someone's already been there. And then he finds the note, uh, and the note claims to be from Alan Pangborn. Uh, and it's just like mocking Ace. It's like I already I I took like the one hundred thousand dollars that Pot Merrill left in here. Finders keepers, Ace. Uh, and so then Ace is uh set on a path to uh kill pangborn and also do as much damage to castle rock as possible because he then like has this moment where he he blames you know he has this like reflection it's like in 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 the summer of his 16th year the first thing that should have been his was stolen from him which was the credit of finding the body of the kid who got hit by the train in the body right that was the first time he was mm -hmm. like pushed down and he he was denied his just desserts and he feels like his entire life uh since then has just been a slow and steady downgrade and now he wants to get revenge on all of castle rock um and uh, then he joins up with uh, Danforth Buster Keaton, the head selectman of Castle Rock, uh, who is also in thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that he has uh, uh, embezzled from the town funds and blown at a racetrack and has basically also gone entirely nuts and is preparing to blow up Castle Rock. Yeah, the I the. Um narrative of Ace Merrill is so good there that like Gordy Lachance standing up to him and really that other kid with a gun yeah. <laughs> you know that seems, that yeah. seems pretty yeah. important Chris too. having a gun was pretty important <laughs> yeah Chris having that gun seemed pretty but it's it's notable that Gordy Lachance like in you know it's it's king right like the writer wins out here but like Chris having a gun seemed pretty big mm -hmm. uh but yeah the the idea that like one defeat like knocked king greaser off of 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 you know king shit mountain mm -hmm. is it's good it's such a good like and everything else is just like a slow fall mm -hmm. you know like no, there's nothing in particular that went bad it's just like happened slowly and he says you know eventually he became like a monster stalking around mm -hmm. um you know that that didn't belong there anymore uh as opposed to the monster that was part of the town right you know like it, at one point castle rock with the goodness of nostalgia bullshit, mm -hmm. right? Like, did a good thing and expelled a monster. And they just let another one right back right. in. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like that. I like, that's really good. And it makes the rest of the novel so frustrating. <laughs> like, all these little pieces about these these characters makes the rest that of just, like, getting through it so frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, other character... I guess the other big character that we get here is Buster Keaton. Right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, What'd you think about him? He's such a stock king character at this point, mm -hmm. right? Like, 
crazy rich man. Mm-hmm. Uh, like sort of a self-important uh, local politician, uh, uh, very mean to his wife, uh, very con- uh, very, very assured of kind of like his own cognizance in things, but also like constantly ignoring all of the signs that he is not cognizant, right? There's like a history of mental illness in his family, uh, and he is slowly developing this like idea that there are like what he calls the persecutors, right? That there's some sort of like a conspiracy of people out to get him. Uh, and I... Yeah, I mean, he's an all right character. I mean, he's he's the character you create. Here's the thing is he basically becomes the trash can man. Right. 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 He, right. That's why. Yeah. He's this Kingian archetype at this way. He's like there might be more of these guys than there are greasers at this. Yeah. Point. Like he's the character who uh, can most plausibly be pushed to the point where he's like, ha 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 ha. I'm going like, oh, what's this? The the town works. It has uh, requested uh, we buy like. 15 crates of dynamite so they can, you know, open up a new area of the gravel pit outside of town. Well, I'm just going to approve this and up the order to 20 crates of dynamite. And then at the end of the book, uh, I'm just going to take my 20 crates of dynamite and we're going to blow up all of Castle Rock with it. Uh, And like the guy who's, you know, just going to like be into that idea and want to do it because he has he is so far gone in terms of uh, his relationship to reality. It's just like totally severed. Right. Ace is Ace is uh, uh, crazed. Right. He's mad. uh, But Ace basically knows what's going on. Uh, whereas Keaton has fully been in, enveloped in, uh, like, the paranoia, and, like, Gaunt has fed him that paranoia, too, right? Gaunt is like, oh, you know about the persecutors, you know about them? Well, I need someone to help me take them out, and here's what you need to do, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the thing he gets from Gaunt is so good, right? Because, like, really, the guy, he's he's he has a double problem, mm-hmm. uh, like many characters in this novel do, right? Like, one is that he... Um, is he has a genetic, apparently, you know, like a, a cursed town propensity for madness, mm-hmm. you know, like that's what he's got one issue going on with him, like paranoia and violence. And the and the other thing is he, he's an addict mm-hmm. like Ace Merrill is an addict, right? Like um, uh, Polly is an addict or is becoming an addict or on the cusp of being an addict. Maybe maybe is it's kind of unclear. And like uh Pangborn is an addict, mm-hmm. but although his is grief-oriented, right. right? You know, it's a scab he cannot let go, um, and it gets written about as addiction. And so it is fascinating that kind of the four characters, and these are the four characters that get five times as much, you know, time to to spin and do stuff as anyone else does. They they are all very explicitly either literally addicted to something or allegorically addicted to something. Mm-hmm. And and his is he's a gambling addict. He can't can't stop gambling. Can't stop betting on the horses. Yep. And he gets a little toy that tells him exactly how every race is going to go. Yes, <laughs> winning Which ticket. It, it's great. Yeah. It's great, right? Like, what's the thing that's so horrifying? You know about horse racing. You know, it's that you can't know the future. So, what if you knew the future? What if you were a uh, Biff from Back to the Future? Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and, like, you know, it seems like he's making all this money, he's gonna be able to pay off his debtors, and, like, uh, the, uh, like, the, um, he's been embezzling money, and, like, the state has started sending him letters, because they're noticing discrepancies, and so he knows his time is numbered. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. And, uh, so he thinks, like, he has this moment where it's like, oh, it's all gonna come together, like, I'm gonna make this work, uh, but then another one of the people that Gaunt's, uh, 
uh, curried uh, or gotten him to do a favor for goes into the house and puts up a bunch of pink slips uh, because he he uh, parks in the accessibility space outside the courthouse and gets a ticket for it. And that pisses him off uh, because he thinks because he's, you know, head selectman, he should be able to park wherever he wants and he shouldn't be, uh, be you know, subject to uh, uh, getting something so lowly as a parking ticket. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, all these tickets get put around the house and they all, uh, uh, show some sort of knowledge of what he's done. Uh, and that just like snaps him, right? He's on the upswing and then Gaunt from another angle, uh, comes in and like cuts him off at the knees. And like, from that point on, he's just like nuts and he eventually like murders his wife with a hammer and, uh, you know, eventually is running around with Ace Merrill setting up, uh, uh, dynamite sticks to blow up the various parts of Castle Rock. Yeah. And he does yep. it. Like, he he does that. And also, behind all... So all of this comes together, right? Like, Pangborn and Polly and Gaunt and uh, Buster Keaton, who has to be called Buster. And, oh, and he murders his wife in a really grisly yeah. way. It was awful. Uh, oh, weirdly enough, replicated in Fargo. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, um, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the, uh, in Ace Merrill, you know, they all run together in a big old final battle that also, uh, co with that, uh, th- all the Catholics and Baptists in town are just beating the shit out of each other in the street and like knifing each other mm-hmm. and going at each other with axes and shit. And it's because they both like nerve gassed one another. Yeah. <laughs> like what, where did the boxes, because basically what happens is that they both receive notes from one another, um, you know, based on this feud that's going on, uh, about if they get to have gambling night or not, or casino night, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And Baptists hate it. And so they, they send notes to one another that like egg each other on. And at the same, and that's all Leland gaunt bullshit. And at the same time, like mustard gas is deployed in there in in both of their like respective churches, mm-hmm. and I maybe I just missed it. Where did oh, the mustard gas oh, come uh, from? Uh, you missed it because both of those mustard gas bombs are, uh, or they're like stink bombs, right? Um, those yeah. are Leland Gaunt mechanisms. Uh, uh, Keaton's wife puts one, I think, in the um Catholic church, and as she's oh, doing it, okay. she like looks yeah, across yeah. the street at the Baptist church and she sees someone she knows, like a woman she knows also like running in with a little box and they like make eye contact and they're both like you too huh <laughs> um like they have this moment yeah. of connection where they both realize they're on the hook to gaunt uh but they don't really because of you know the way that he like works his magic on people you know he hypnotizes people literally multiple times um right like they don't they don't step outside their situation to notice how weird any of this is and like <laughs> so they just like meet uh, uh passing in the parking lot um I, I do remember yeah. that. I just totally because that happens a little bit earlier, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Um, I think just in that build up to the end, I, I'd forgotten about that. The I, I mean, that's also kind of the interesting thing about Leland Gaunt, right? Is it's like if this is a satire of consumerism, whatever. If I'll I'll grant that. If that's the case, uh, the literal devils they're hypnotizing people, right? <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like maybe maybe it's not all up to them, right? You know what they're doing here. So anyway, yeah. but. Uh, but yeah, so they uh, like nerve gas one another with these stink bombs or something. I mean, it's really uh, powerful. It's yeah. like some people might have died, it seems, because yeah. uh, there are people that get trapped inside and don't break yeah. out. You know, some people are like, oh, there's people still inside. And then they say, don't worry about it. We're going to kill each other in the road. Mm-hmm. And then they go and do that. So there's like a big final battle that happens. And Andy 
from Twin Peaks shoots Ace Merrill in the head. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, please imagine the film adaptation of that. Um, <laughs> you know, if you took Kiefer Sutherland and Andy from Twin Peaks, but as he is represented in The Return. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Buster dies Very too, good. but I don't remember how. Buster does die. I don't remember yeah. either. Weirdly enough. He's just he's just out. Uh, yeah, he's dead. Yeah. and so- Oh, uh, I think uh, he just got, he gets shot in the stomach. Oh, that's I think. right. Uh, no, I remember. Uh, Andy shoots him in the stomach. That's not his name. Whatever. Yeah, Norris. Norris. Norris shoots yeah. him in the stomach. And then uh, Ace executes That's him. right. Because he's like, oh, I got yeah. some bad medicine for you. And then he shoots him in the head or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that happens. And so it's just... Uh, Andy hanging out. Andy, by the way, also got uh, 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 snookered by Gaunt. He was sold a fishing rod um, that was just like the fishing rod that his dear old dad had. And he had all these great memories. And then uh, and this is another kind of typical thing is that he wants to go out fishing with this uh, uh, fishing rod. But when he does, he thinks like, oh, but what if the fishing rod breaks? So he never uses it. Right. In the same way that the kid who gets the baseball card, like he wants to like show it off to his friends and like brag about it. But then he's like, well, what if they want to steal it? So the people get the things and then they like covet them. They hide them. Um, uh, And he ends up doing his favor for Gaunt, which involves like uh, uh, puncture, puncturing the tires on some guy's car, uh, which that guy takes as being done by someone else. And he goes off and he kills him. Uh, and then Andy finds out about it and um, feels so guilty that he's going to hang himself. Um, and this is also what happens with Brian Rusk, right? Doing the thing and then finding out about the consequences mm-hmm. and then killing yourself. The, the, the point I'm trying to highlight here is that Andy. Uh, uh, the character who I think I just called Andy, his name is Norris. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, but it's so easy to picture him as Andy is the thing. Uh, he is uh, uh, the the point I want to highlight is that he is being placed on kind of the same characterological level as an eleven uh, year old boy, right? Yeah, he's not, he's yep. not one of the ones who gets pulled into doing murder himself, but the one who feels so bad about what he is complicit in that he is now going to take his own life. Um, and so he's getting ready to hang himself, uh, and he has, like, just the, uh, uh, you know, it's the deus ex machina moment, this moment of realization, like, another voice in his head is like, hey, wait a minute, take another look at that fishing reel, and when he looks at it, he sees that it's not the fancy, beautiful, expensive Japanese fishing reel that his father had, uh, it's just, like, this cheap, uh, uh, bamboo-built thing, uh, and he is at the moment of like, you know, hanging himself and he manages to not hang himself. Uh, he like struggles down out of the noose and then he's like, by God, like I was so foolish. I need to set things right. right. So he becomes like, you know, the, the again, childlike, right. Force of good. Who's going to like zoom in and like take out these two, uh, uh, like secondary threats while, uh, Gaunt and Pangborn have their showdown, uh, because Gaunt has finally gotten Pangborn by uh, letting him watch a videotape that purports to show uh, the last moments of his uh, wife's, like, driving the car into the tree and dying. And what happens Mm -hmm. on the tape is that Ace Merrill comes up behind them (laughs) in his, like, uh, kick-ass roadster uh, and, like, runs them off the road and then, like, cackles about it. And he's like, by God, Ace Merrill killed my wife and son. And so he is uh, hunting down Ace Merrill to kill him at the same moment uh, Ace is trying to find Alan because he thinks Alan stole all of Pop's money. Um, and then Aunt- what? Well, and and the great thing about this. So, well, so one thing is I I like that Norris uh, decides not to hang himself and then almost does on accident. Yeah. 
that's like a real that's a Stephen Kingian kind of thing. But the the thing I really love about Pangborn's um the footage, right? That you know, the mysterious VCR footage, the mysterious uh-huh. uh cursed VHS. Uh what's so cool about that is that this might be the first place Stephen King has actually done like um like a real mystery, like blinking you'll miss it. You gotta be paying attention to know the truth. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Like like in a real mystery novel, you know, it, it, as opposed to The Dark Calf or uh, the, uh, uh, what, what's the other one called? Secret Window, Secret mm. Garden, where it's just like characters explaining what occurred to you over and over again with no real mystery mm-hmm. to it. Um, Because, you know, if you're paying attention to when he's watching the video, you know it's fake. Right. Right, right, right. Because he eventually uh, realizes it. Because the the thing yeah. that like drives him nuts is that uh, the coroner or whatever is able to uh, ascertain that his wife was not wearing her seatbelt, um, which was out of character for her. Because he thinks of like all the times she like put on her seatbelt or like told you know yeah. the kids or him to put on their seatbelt. So like what yeah. happened? Well, she's like ejected from yes, the car. Right. So it's like, what happened this one day? Why wasn't she wearing her seatbelt? Was it because of, uh, like, you know, this is why he thinks, like, maybe it was, like, suicide. Like, she uh, wanted to die. Um, And so in the video, uh, and Pangboard eventually realizes this, she is wearing her seatbelt. And that's when he, like, realizes that Gaunt has, like, taken him in and he can, like, turn on him then. And Polly has a similar thing where... um, she is given a letter that suggests that Alan has been contacting the police department in San Francisco, uh, trying to figure out what mm-hmm. happened to her son. Um, but then she realizes that her actual her her Polly is her nickname and it's what everyone's always called her. Uh, but her legal name is Patricia. And the letter she got, she realizes, is addressed to Patricia. But when she was in San Francisco, she only ever gave her name as Polly. And so, uh, you know, that's that's a another kind of similar thing of like, oh, these these tiny little details uh, become very significant uh, when the characters can like make them significant in a way that I thought was actually really effective. Well, it's also this interesting kind of thing that I is not intended, I don't think, but it's like, if you're a main enough character to have three dimensions, then Leland Gaunt can't know you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that like pragmatically, that's actually what's produced, right? If you've got enough backstory, Leland Gaunt can't know the whole thing. But if like your whole thing is like, you're a fat woman who loves Elvis, right. which is more than one character in this book where their whole deal, mm-hmm. that's that's all of them. There's nothing more. And so there's this kind of implicit, like, if you're a boring, normal American, Leland Gaunt's got your fucking number. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're like a person with complexity, sufficient psychological complexity, you can be, you know, you can get out of the devil. <laughs> Um, which I don't, I don't feel like that's intended, but that is the effect of like, you know, the, the kind of... Um, I don't know, pattern of the yeah, novel. It's like the textual consequence of the ways that, um, like the hierarchies of character operate here. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so he figures it out and then they have a little shootout and, uh, you know, Ace Merrill gets, uh, splurped yeah. in the middle of the, <laughs> in the middle of the thing. And then they confront Leland Gaunt with, uh, truly like it, it's similar. It's almost the stand level of like, you know, deus ex machina, I guess this is going to do the thing. Uh, I don't know. Like, I guess Alan Pangborn is kind of a scamp. We've seen two scenes of him being a scamp so far. Mm -hmm. So he must be a true scamperoni and he's going to scamp out the devil. I mean, it's like it's the stand and it's also it because uh, like um, 
Pangborn likes to do little magic tricks, particularly when he's talking with kids, because it's like, you know, uh, uh, it sort of gets the kids to like him and talk to him. But he also likes to do shadow animals on the walls. Like when he's bored, mm-hmm. like, well, we see him do it one time, yeah. right? Well, and it's in the in the sheriff's office at the beginning. right? Well, and it's mentioned that like this is like this is what he does when he's on calls, like on speakerphone and he's bored. He just like does uh, shadow animals on the walls. Um, and so here at the end, like Gaunt comes out in like his traveling coat and with his uh, hyena skin uh, uh, suitcase that is like uh there's something inside of it and it's like sort of jittering and like expanding and shrinking right there's like things in there and uh it sounds like screaming it's all the souls that he's collected from castle rock um Mm -hmm. it's fun uh he and uh gaunt and and pangborn have kind of their showdown and like how uh pangborn takes takes him out right how he fights him back is he finds uh a a uh, joke canister of uh, a spring snake, right? The uh, mixed nuts joke canister in his car that like his son really loved gags and novelties, the son who died. Um, and it was like left in his car. It was like the last little trick that his son bought. And so he like opens that up and the spring snake comes out and it becomes a real snake and it like latches onto Gaunt and it's like biting him and he's like screaming. And then Gaunt has a, a little um, bouquet of, not Gaunt, but um, Pangborn has a little bouquet of uh, tissue paper flowers that uh you know folds up and then you like pull it out from under your watch and it like like you produced a bouquet from nothing he like and he has he is wearing it all the time every day this man this adult man puts on his watch and just in case has his fucking clown trick (laughs) under his watch band Well, and it, luckily for him, he pulls it out, uh, and when it uh, expands, it becomes not just a bouquet of flowers, it becomes, like, all the colors, right? They're, they're like, streaming colors, like a rainbow, but then it's all the colors at once in, like, the pure form of, of the white, right? The white is here, is what is said, and Gaunt is, like, shrieking shrieking, and, like, pulling back from it like a vampire being confronted with a crucifix. Um, yep. And... Uh, it's also described very much like uh, uh, the way that the talisman and the talisman is described, right? It's that same kind mm-hmm. of elemental uh, uh, iridescent force. Um, and Alan starts doing some real the exorcist shit. Yeah, he starts evoking and whatnot. Uh huh. He's like sh- like a uh, uh, right the devil. Yeah. Uh, and then he starts doing his shadow animals, and this is where it gets like this weird pushback because he does um, a shadow animal of a giant dog, and as he's doing it, uh, it um like they can hear like an actual dog, like a huge dog growling somewhere. So it's like. Uh, well, and then he does uh, a bird, right? He's like, the sparrows mm-hmm. are flying again, you son of a bitch, which is the thing from uh, uh, the dark half, right? The, mm-hmm. the sparrows flying around. So there's this weird way in which, like, uh, the the storied haunts of Castle Rock now come together to, like, force Leland Gaunt out. Uh, yeah, even... but he doesn't make, like, a, like a murdering sheriff's d- deputy, does he? No, he doesn't do that. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, he doesn't do like uh, uh, the car from Mrs. Todd's shortcut or whatever. Yeah. Uh, just so it's you know those those t- kind of two things show up. But then Gaunt like he's like eh! like he's like shrunk right. He's become mm-hmm. like this the little Rumpelstiltskin thing that you've talked about. And he like uh, uh, skulks to his car and like the door opens up and he like slithers in and the car door closes and then it just backs out and it drives away. Um, and as it drives away, it like drives up into the sky. And- wait, wait, hold on. Before we talk about going up to the sky, did you talk about the snake? 
Yeah, I did. But- okay, okay, sorry. I just, I got so caught up in the shadow animals. <laughs> I was like, hold on, we actually talk about the snake? Okay, sorry, sorry, go ahead. All right, we're going yeah, up yeah, into yeah. the sky. We're going up into the sky. Yeah, so it's like going up into the sky, and as he's driving, like, up into the sky, it be- the the car shifts, and it becomes like a, a, a wagon, and then it becomes, or yeah, it becomes like a, a carriage, a, a horse-drawn carriage, and then it becomes like a medicine show wagon. And Gaunt is just like this, like, little gremlin thing, as you said, with, like, a, a curled curly tipped shoes right yeah he's rumpelstiltskin yeah. for some reason i don't is this like i feel like this is a michael lutz like knowledge base is there like some devil that's this little creature that in some some famous story uh not that i'm aware of uh i just think I, it's weird because it's kind of it's interesting how like as gaunt is like running away and we get some point of view chapters from Gaunt, not chapters really more like sections from gaunt mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. where Little he pieces. talks about his his long long history of uh, you know like in ancient babylonia i was like i was just rode my wagon into town and i was there for one night and then i left uh so we see like the history of him except it like goes back to the 19th century and then just stops like uh you know that's that's uh uh, we go from car to like early 1920s wagon to like 19th century old west medicine show uh, mm-hmm. wagon, and that's right. it. That's where history yeah. began. I that is really funny to me too. I because I was like, oh, we're gonna get like another five of these. I'm curious about where this goes, and they don't go anywhere. It's right. just like I'm good. Yep, that's as far back as the evil goes. Yep, <laughs> like 1860. Like- well, it's like, well, th- after that, all of the evil was undifferentiated because they just right. had it was just horses and wagons. That's all it was. <laughs> right. All the way back. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was actually looking here to see, did uh, does anything like this kind of happen at the end of something wicked this way comes? And it doesn't look look like it. No, not really. Because I probably have the last time I read that book was probably before I read Needful Things. So, mm-hmm. uh, no. no. Did you know? Uh, I didn't know this. I, or I guess I never thought about it. Um, Something Wicked This Way Comes is also a shared um, shared town novel. Oh, yeah. Greentown, Illinois. Uh, yeah, with Dandelion Wine. And apparently Bradbury went on to write a third book there. Mm-hmm. Like way, way later. But anyway, yeah. that's that that's notable too, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, he turns into that little gremlin and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I was clapping. I was saying, I, give me more of the gremlin. <laughs> give me more of the guy with, yeah. the, with the smoking feet. Yeah, so Leland Gaunt, uh, biblical Satan, um, some weird Lovecraftian entity, uh, and also little goblin Rumpelstiltskin. Yep. I want that one. I want Um, that one. If I got to choose between those three, I want a little goblin every time. Did you like the part where uh, after Polly has realized her mistake and she's like trying to get Alan to realize that uh, Gaunt has lied uh, to him in some way. Did you mm-hmm. like the part where uh, Polly is just like standing in the street of Castle Rock shouting at Alan Pangborn? Evil defeats itself, Alan. Did you know that evil defeats itself? That's not actually what she's saying, but she's like, he he had to have made a mistake. He's prideful. He yeah. always makes mistakes. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't care for that at all. Right. That's like <laughs> I, the snapshot the, of our show. <laughs> I know. I know. Good guy. I, 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 I mean, I do like it. You know, it's, uh, you know, say the line, Bart. I do like yeah. when Steve just says the thing. Right. It is fun. Uh, but yeah. Um, it, so here's the thing for you. This is on 678 on my thing. Uh, this is one of the things Polly is shouting. She says, you cheated, you cheated, you lied, and you cousined. Mm-hmm. Where else is that in Stephen King? Is that in the Dark Tower? 
Oh, it might be. I tried to look it up. I tried to look, and I couldn't find it. But I, I, for some reason, I think it might come up in Wizard and Glass. It's somewhere else. We have either read it or will read it. And I know yeah. I don't remember it from the end of Needful Things. Well, yeah. I mean, part of what makes it difficult, I'm surprised that uh, you locked onto it. Because I also found that familiar and evocative. But the problem for me is I've read so many uh, 15th, 16th, and 17th century pamphlets right. about how the devil works. Uh, that this is like formulaic, right? You cheat yeah. and you lie and you cousin. Like I have read so many pamphlets where kind of like those three words appear in approximately that order. That yep. it, yeah, it, it feels like that. Yep, I I don't have that. So yeah, so it's got to be somewhere else. Um, it's in King somewhere. I just w- okay. we'll need to be on the lookout for it. If it's in a book that we've already read and I've forgotten, please someone let me know. Yeah. Um, the a thing that's also interesting here too that I just want to point out because it does matter for like upcoming king right you know we, we've said that the white and we've remarked on it a couple times since the you know the end of the 80s that the white as a concept is going to become more important you mm-hmm. know as time goes on and becomes like all important in some ways um uh the white the dark tower the red king you know what uh-huh. i mean like those those become hugely important in the king and uh something that's that is worth noting is that it's on 679 for me um, <laughs> Alan says, abracadabra, you lying fuck. And he's like doing the bouquet of flowers thing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But then the white, the coming of the white, which is on the next page, it's in italics. It's in its own paragraph. And it's not, it, it's, it's not dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's not thought. It's not thought because thought isn't represented that way. You know, in these, uh, in these sections here, it's italicized. There's something really interesting that, that the white, the coming of the white is narratorial voice. Right. It's just some, some nebulous thing is thinking it. Right. Well, I took it as, yeah, sort of like what you're saying. It is also something that like Pangborn is half thinking mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like the narrative here, the, the narrative it's, it's a, a free and direct discourse, right? The, yes, the, yeah. the narrow, the narratorial text is, uh, doing this thing where it is making a claim or a sort of a summative statement, but that is also implicitly connected to something a character is saying or thinking. Uh, And yeah, so uh, how I actually uh, read this was like, oh, uh, you know, Alan isn't thinking this kind of individually because like truly like the, the, the power of the narrative, right. The overarching goodness of like the Stephen King multiverse, like he is something is being beamed into him, right. Knowledge of this other force. Uh, and so he's like irrationally thinking the coming of the white, the white is here, this thing that he has no context for, and there's no real way to parse. He just like knows it. Right. Well, well, the interesting thing about it too is that when we get this italicized text, I'm just kind of flipping back through, and there's some like there, there's a lot of italicized internal dialogue, not monologue, mm-hmm. but dialogue text that happens um, with God. What's his name? Norris. I was going to call him Andy again. Where Norris is kind of arguing with himself about whether or not he should, you know, hang himself. And notably, the voice gets identified as Gaunt. So it, there, there is an interesting kind of thing here where, I, I mean, I read it the same way you did, and obviously that's the way it's kind of meant to be deployed, right? It's like it's this kind of big thought that, that's mm-hmm. bigger than one person's internal, you know, uh, monologue or whatever. But but it is no, notable and noticeable to me here that in the last hundred pages or so, italicized text is almost like thought from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Gaunt for the most part, but this obviously is not Gaunt, or I don't take mm-hmm. it to be Gaunt. Um, although maybe it could be right. Like the coming of the white, you know, like, oh shit, my, yeah. the, my enemy, that could mm-hmm. be the case there, but I don't know. I just, I think that's a notable, you know, in this book, 
I don't care for the whole big book. I, I, you know, I think that we've talked about, for the most part, the things I've liked about it, but I just, this is not a book that I will ever reread. Not very curious about it going forward. Um, but there are some stylistic maneuvers here that I think are really, really interesting. And that was one of them. Uh, what do you think about this little, and then they're happily ever after literally Pangborn is like, well, this town's fucked. Bye. (laughs) Uh, and Polly literally is basically says, well, do you think the novel should keep going? And Alan goes, no, I think we're done. Yeah. (laughs) I think we're good. Um, (laughs) yep. And then that's over. Uh, Yeah. The, they topped the view and picked up Route 119 on the other side, and Castle Rock was gone. The darkness had borne that away, too. Castle Rock was gone. We're fucking done. Yep. Except for the fact we're going to come back. But don't don't think about it too hard. And then we get another... What do you think about this little stinger on the end? I mean, it's uh, it's the stand again. Or rather, the stand complete and uncut, right? The devil has been vanquished this time, but he comes back. So we get uh, a, an epilogue that is titled the same as the prologue. You've been here before. Uh, and it's a very similar thing. It's someone in the first person talking to you saying, you've been here before. Why don't you sit down a spell? We'll talk about it. Welcome to Junction City, Iowa. Uh, Junction City is really getting it in these last few books. (laughs) Which was the setting of the library policeman. And so uh, the narrator points out like, hey, over there, that's where Sam Peebles used to have his real estate business before uh, he and Naomi Evans uh, shacked Mm -hmm. up and left town. So we know that they escaped uh, whatever's getting ready to happen. Uh, but then he notices there's this other woman who, uh, coming down the street with her cane, she has a, a rheumatism, gives her a lot of trouble. It's caused her to uh, recede from social life. Poor girl. Uh, what's she doing? She's checking out this new shop uh, called, what is it? Answered Prayers? Well, that's an awfully strange name for a shop. I wonder what's going to happen. Um and so, like, you know, it's all getting ready to happy, happen again, but in, like, a different Stephen King location that, uh, as far as I know, doesn't actually really get revisited. It, like, came in for the library policeman and for this. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, the, uh, I, 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 the method here, I think, really, just kind of big final thought before we do some segments, um, mm-hmm. or before you have a final thought. But my final thought yeah. on this is, like, the method really does this book dirty, mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah. which is probably why I don't like it very much because both the dark half, the, the dark half is a better like investigation story for me mm-hmm. uh, and, and kind of runs through some of this already. And uh, the, the sun dog is so good and kind of hits the same notes. Yeah. And I like the idea, like, because, you know, it's just a thing. It, you know, has this kind of thing. But I like the idea that the object itself was poison, that your desire for it will harm you. I like all that. And clearly you can do it without needing the Christian devil. Right. <laughs> like, like, and it's better. The ending of the Sundog is so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I, I mean, I do like the follow up here that everyone was like, yeah, I guess it burned down. Whatever. Yeah. He's gone. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think in some ways the podcast, like, hurts this book i think if you maybe just read this book in isolation you might have a better time than i did but Mm -hmm. but i i didn't care for it yeah uh one comment that i want to make that i don't think we've like surfaced in the discussion here uh but that like uh, the thing i said about like the fishing rod uh that norris gets where it turns out to be trash that's true of all of the things that gaunt sells right it turns out that like all of the uh individuals who purchase these things their apprehensions of them are always this like fantasized version of like some just piece of trash um uh, 
the thing that I think is interesting about going back to Junction City here at the end, uh, I talked about this in the Four Past Midnight episode, uh, is that that novella was kind of the the Stephen King version of a Dean Koontz novel, which I pinned on the the basic plot line being about um, a heterosexual couple who overcome the uh, malevolent threat and do so in order to like, you know, uh, uh, found their love and start a new life together. Uh, that gets repeated here with uh, Pangborn and Polly. Uh, like that, that thing gets revisited, and so I think it's interesting that we have this uh, re, uh, this retake of that similar theme on a much broader scale. And then at mm-hmm. the end, we have like the nod to the previous time he did that. And then there's also kind of a meta textual nod to that in the book, where uh, late, late, kind of late in the game, when Polly's being uh, turned against Alan by Gaunt. Oh, we get some, I don't know if this is like a character's thoughts or if this is like the, the narrator's right perspective on things like talking about the town, um, talks about how, uh, everyone, like the women in Castle Rock, even though there are a lot of women who are pretty suspicious of, uh, Polly and cause she has all these secrets. Um, there are some women in town, a good portion of them who are actually really happy that Polly and Sheriff Pangborn are seeing each other. And it's specifically said that like they, they see them as protagonists in some kind of dark tinged fairy tale, uh, where despite all their tribulations, they are going to end up happy together in the end. Hmm. So like a, a sort of meta move on the book itself, but also I think. Uh, again, maybe a little bit of a nod to the readers or sort of like mm-hmm. King acknowledging that um, many of his like the, I would say probably maybe the majority of his readers are women. Um, and it's sort of interesting that this gets framed in that way because he has so much stayed away from uh, marriage plots or like romance plots uh, mm-hmm. in everything. And yet here there is this kind of like maybe little okay, finally, I'm going to write uh, a man and a woman like coming to know each other and like falling in love or like loving one another. Um, also, in in light of all the other stuff that goes on in this book, like we get a sex scene with Alan and Polly that maybe doesn't need to be there. Like I, they can have sex, obviously, but we don't need to get as much description of it as we do here. That, that's a thing that I would cut maybe. Um, I don't know. I, you know, uh, to me, it's like not as... I I don't know. It, I mean, it, it's it's out of place, but also this is like the most ropey, you know what I mean? Like, who gives a shit what's in the book book? <laughs> I learn a lot about, like, women riding Elvis uh-huh. and, like, the, their imaginary of, like, you know, what that's like. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to begrudge just a good old-fashioned kind of boring sex scene. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that's actually why it's here, right? Is that it is, it is here to show like what actual sex between human beings who know and love each other looks like versus like all of the, um, uh, the peccadillos, right. That everyone else in Castle Rock is kind of, uh, beholden to. Yeah. Oh, and we didn't even talk about it and we don't have to get into it, but there's a long extended bit about, um, uh, child pornography. Oh yeah, like a, a very long extended one. I mean, if if I'm looking for things to just cut, things that truly, literally don't matter, mm-hmm. you could you could remove them from the book, and it would. It, it's not like oh, does it give granularity? This is not like the Twitter argument of like, oh, should we remove stuff from from books or whatever? Uh, that that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying truly, literally, actually, it has no impact on anything else. It is just a little like it, side experience we have mm-hmm. in the book. To learn about uh, the principal and his child pornography collection. 
Yep. And uh, it sucks. But also, it is like Stephen King doing the thing that he has talked about, which is, number one, going for the gross out. It's mm-hmm. much like the bestiality pornography, right? Mm-hmm. It's going for the gross out. And it is doing the thing that he has talked about repeatedly, which is sometimes he writes books based on things he sees in the tabloids. And um, coming out of the 1980s, much like the moment we're in right now, the uh, the um, center right and right in the United States were very invested in the figure of the child as the thing that is most needed to be protected in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, the playbook that we're experiencing right now nationally in the united states not not to get too uh uh right now in the moment of it right but it's a playbook that's been run before like mm-hmm. it that's that's why people ran it it has run already um and it was run around um questions of queerness and hiv then and now it's in a slightly different terms but it's from the same place of um you know or it has the same rhetoric of yeah. protection in uh, the same ideology there. And so this is King just playing in that little space for a while, right? Oh, you want something gross? You want something terrible? You want a thing from your heart of heart, your fear of fears? It's the principal who is a child pornography lover. And guess what? The man's man shop teacher that you like so much, he's gay. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, and they're going to fight one another. You know what I mean? It's just some like straight up bullshit. Right. And it um, conflates and I uh, see... uh, being gay with being a pedophile in like a very... <laughs> Uh, the character does it, I should say. I uh, I don't know if, like, that's a move that Steve is necessarily conscious that he's making. Uh, but that's how the novel ends up presenting it, is that, like, oh, here are two gay men whose, like, gayness is, like, uh, consubstantial with being uh, pedophiles. Yeah, absolutely. There are two right. gay characters in the novel, and they are both pedophiles, straight right. up. The the end. Uh, that that is the the narrative claim. I don't know if Stephen King believes that. I'm certain. Yeah. I, I feel certain that he doesn't believe uh, that that is the case, but nevertheless, he he wrote a novel in which the entire horizon for non-normative sexuality is uh, being a pedophile, and that shit sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't like the novel, and it doesn't mean you can't like Stephen King, whatever. This is not judgment on his uh, soul, right? Who am I, some Leland Gaunt? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that's not what it's about, but it is about, like, Stephen King says that he writes from the headlines sometimes, right? He tries Mm -hmm. to mind read what the fears and horrors of America are, and he puts them in his books. He says that repeatedly. We've quoted from it before. This is a moment of him doing that, and I think that probably has some sort of largely negative effect. I don't think that's good. Mm -hmm. Um, And most importantly to me, it doesn't matter. Right. Like it truly and literally is its own little side story in the book. And it even has a comedy element to it, which is weird. Yeah. Where the guy's like crushing the other guy with the couch. Yeah, yeah, he's hiding he's behind the behind couch it. and he falls asleep and then the other guy sits on it and traps him so he can't jump out and murder him. Yeah, it's it's such a and he's got, of course, and this is like the the, the uh, Stephen King turn of the uh, uh, of the thing here. Right. It's he has a parrot or a parakeet or something named Tammy Faye. Yeah. Right, which is you know, um, you you can see where that argument goes. Also, they kill that nice little dog, uh-huh. and like, there's a mentally ill woman who, uh, you know, was traumatized into murdering her husband because he, you know, beat the hell out of her constantly, and she has one little thing in the world that's okay, and it's a nice little dog, and of course, it has to get murdered. Mm-hmm. And it's like I'm not like queasy around these issues, but it's just so cruel and so stupid. And so bullshit, right? Like, 
it literally is just to grab you by the heartstrings, and it's so boring. It's right. such a boring way of doing it. It's fucking, it's, uh, you know, kick the dog, save the cat shit. Steve, come on. You are such a talented writer. You're so good. There's There are parts of this book that are so good. and But the, the bottom of the barrel is, is is you know, we're scraping wood here. Right. Well, and, and on a similar note, right, there's, um. so one of the other things that Gaunt, uh, uh, does rather he he stokes like you know uh, a sectarian prejudice in terms of uh, Christianity, but he also, also anti Polish prejudice. Right, he also stokes <laughs> ethnic prejudice. Like uh, right, right. Uh, like if you have any sort like are are you a, a a French descent? Are you of Polish descent? Are you of Irish descent? Guess what? Uh, mm-hmm. Leland Gaunt is going to arrange for you to get an insulting note about that. And then yeah, there there's is one black man. Right, there is forces, right there. There is one black man in the entirety of Castle Rock. And of course, all of his stuff is about uh, uh, getting like racial epithets and like jokes hurled at him. So, yep. Uh, you know, just could have been like, I understand like the idea of having like, you know, the devil comes to town and then like works on your latent uh, bigotries in order to get you to fight your neighbors. Like, I get it. Uh, could be more artfully done. Yeah, I think that's like a perfectly fine conceptual thing to do i just i don't think he does a good job of it right you know i just i just think it's a bad book mm-hmm. um a bad book with some really great parts in it but ultimately for me a bad book yeah uh i like when the book is really humming i i really like it but also you know i agree with kind of the the generality of the reviews of the time that it's a little over long and because you n- kind of know how everything is going to end up from page one. The fact that the windup is so long feels a little silly. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, so, some segments. My favorite kingism uh, is the segment where Cameron and I each pick a line, word, uh, sentence, image from what we've just read that we think is indelibly kingy, somehow representative of Stephen King's distinctive style as a storyteller or master of prose. Um, uh, I can go first. Uh, I think I usually do because I write my name first in the show doc. So if you ever want to jump in on this, Cameron. It can be yours. I'm going first. So oh, mine gosh. is, uh, it's on page 591. Okay. It's when Ace Merrill returns oh, to the thing, to you, the town. Is this going to be yours too? Uh-huh. This is mine too. Uh, Ace Merrill and Full Dark returned to Castle Rock together. He drove the Chevy Celebrity across Castle Stream Bridge with while thunder rolled heavily back and forth in the sky overhead and lightning jabbed the unresisting earth. He drove with the windows open. There was still no rain falling and the air was thick as syrup. He was tired, or he was dirty and tired and furious. He'd gone to three more locations on the map in spite of the note, unable to believe that what had happened, unable to believe it could have happened. To coin a phrase, he was unable to believe he had been aced out. <laughs> At each one of the spots, he'd found a flat stone and a buried tin can. Two would contain more wads of dirty trading stamps. The last, in the marshy ground behind the, uh, the Shrout Farm, had contained nothing but an old bald point pin. There was a woman with a 40s hairdo on the pin's barrel. She was wearing a 40s-style tank bathing suit as well. When you held the pin up, the bathing suit disappeared. Some treasure. <laughs> so actually, fucking good! Mine was actually different, but it wasn't Ace Merrill driving into town scene. Oh, yours is the one where he's coming back with the uh, with the the big car. No, mine was the one where he comes back for the first time. Oh, Uh, that one's good, too. They're all good. I I think they all have that same kind of flavor. I like that one. And the reason I'm putting it as like a kingism is that it's scene setting where humor is the payoff for the scene Mm -hmm. setting. 
And that's a thing that we've seen quite a bit going, you know, so far, but this is a really stick out version. So that's the reason I do it. He's really good at that. And yeah. At the the narration of scene setting carries a joke with it, and that's fun to me. I like that a lot. It's a real highlight of the novel. Uh, what what uh, Ace Merrill driving sequence did you <laughs> choose for uh, Kingism? Yeah, so uh, uh, I won't read this because it's actually a fairly lengthy part, but the sequence is so good. It's at the midpoint of the novel, um, and it starts out like a bird's eye view, whole town view. Uh, you know, it's a hot day in Castle Rock. Here's what this person is doing. Here's what the local dentist is doing. Here's what this other person is doing, right? Just sort of like around town. Uh, the temperature is unseasonably warm for October. Um, uh, you know, we jump into like this character's mind, get a little bit from them. Uh, what's this person doing in the store? Jumps back out to the whole town. Like, you know, it's this much time has passed. The temperature has gone up this much uh, in the distance toward the tin bridge, right? Leading out of Castle Rock. There's a sound on the horizon. Uh, this is what this person we saw earlier is doing now. This is what this person who we didn't see before is doing now. Uh, jumps into someone's head, does a little bit of stuff, uh, pulls back out. Here's the town now. It's so many minutes later. Uh, the temperature is now this uh, on the. Uh, like the sound that we heard in the distance before, we can hear it even more. And it's uh, obviously the sound of a car coming. And it's a car with one hell of a glass pack muffler on it. And we can see the car in the distance, mm -hmm. like coming down over the roads. And it's like this, you know, little hot rod kind of thing. Uh, and then uh, Leland got like back in the town uh, in the front of Needful Things. There is a sign hung that says closed for Columbus Day. A hand reaches out and picks up the sign, takes it down and then puts another sign in the window help wanted yeah. uh and then the car comes into town and that's like you know ace merrill is back uh yeah and that's like such a good scene setting thing there's somewhere right there too where ace merrill is kind of reflecting on his life it's somewhere in those pages yeah uh he's reflecting on his life and he talks about how he's the kind of guy with like a souped up muscle car but not a garage to park it in yes and that's that's a really good mm -hmm. I, I think everything about like all of the ace merrill sections including ace merrill Hanging out with the Christian devil. <laughs> I think those parts are like, I that could be, you know, I would put that in my like upper half of Stephen King's writing. Yeah. I, I think they're just great. I really love the scene where like Gaunt's like, hey, quit fucking up or whatever. And he rips his shirt apart. Yes. And Ace Merle just kind of deals with it. And he goes outside and the other guy, Buster Keaton, is like, uh, oh, you know, because he doesn't know they're supposed to be working together or whatever. And Ace Merrill's like, look, if you've got a problem with it, go take take it up with Leland Gaunt. And he like shows his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like fully beyond it. He's like, whatever. I'm in some other story now. And I, it's fine. It's better than the life I was living before. Mm -hmm. um, I just like Ace Merrill's like a dude who's like uh, down for it. Right. Know? Well, it's like if in it, instead of going entirely nuts, uh, Henry Bowers had to like hang out with Pennywise for a couple of days. Yeah, it would be better, <laughs> I think. Like, I think that would actually and that would make the movie. I, I mean, a lot of things would make part two better, but I think that would make part two really interesting as a movie. If you had some scenes where he's just like getting orders from Pennywise and doing stuff. But, <laughs> it, you know, Henry Bowers has a slightly different purpose in that in that book and then in, in those media objects, because he he's like a distraction, really. You yeah, know, he's not he, he's a bullet. You right. know, he's not he's not someone firing a gun. And uh, here, you know, Ace Merrill is his own gun. Right. Uh, which is which is fun. It's a yeah. different kind of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, but yeah, there's I just like, like that scene like where. Oh, uh, yeah. But just like, you know, there's the scene where um, Gaunt has him in the back room and he like reaches out to shake Ace's hand. And then when Ace tries to shake his hand, like Gaunt is holding a dead <laughs> rat and he's <laughs> he like, says, oh, <laughs> 
oops, I almost gave you my dinner. <laughs> and Israel's like, I don't think he's going to eat that rat. Maybe, maybe I didn't see a rat. Yeah, I didn't see a rat. I, yeah. Yeah, that's really, it's such a fucking cartoon, you know, goofball moment, but uh-huh. it's, it's really fun. I also like that a lot. Yeah, because Gaunt just like cackles and then he like closes the door. <laughs> yeah, he's just a goofball. Uh, that's why I'm saying if he were a little gremlin the whole time, mm-hmm. it would be better. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, what in the Kingiverse is the segment where we sketch out connections between what we just read and the greater uh, multiverse or continuity of Stephen King stuff. We've touched on some of this. This is a Castle Rock story. Uh, the setting of oh, can can I can I say one thing? Okay. I'm so sorry to do it before because I because there's a lot here, so I, yeah. I don't want to go back into the book. the The one thing that Leland Gaunt gives someone that I think is legitimately cool, and I'm so disappointed it goes nowhere is the splinter from Noah's Ark. Oh, yeah. He gives it that to is, the, yeah. Yeah, that's such an 80s thing, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, this kind of, like, biblical archaeology stuff. Uh, like, it's so of its moment and so particular, which is great. And she holds on to it and just imagine she's on Noah's Ark and she's just waiting to hope she hits the mountain. Yeah. It's like she she like goes and plays like an idol game, mm-hmm. <laughs> like waiting on the ark. And that's like her whole deal. And also the writing of her when she dies, that there's wood lice in it that are trying to escape her body after she dies. Uh, we can go back to what in the King of Verse. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, already said this is a Castle Rock story. Um, the main novels set here are the Dead Zone and Cujo in the Dark Half, as well as the novella The Sun Dog and the novella The Body, uh, where we are introduced to the character of Ace Merrill. There are also miscellaneous short stories uh, that uh, have come up. I think what was what was the last short story collection we did called? Was that Nightmares and Dreamscapes? Uh, have, no, that's the one that's, that's coming up. That's the one that's that's one's coming up. up. Uh, okay. Skeleton crew is the one. Skeleton that's crew. That's up. right. Uh, uh, many of the short stories in Skeleton Crew are Castle Rock stories, so uh, that's where a lot of the groundwork is laid. There, mm-hmm. um, Shawshank, uh, Penitentiary is in the background here. So, uh, uh, another story from uh different seasons is is in the Castle Rock continuity. Uh, Dairy is mentioned uh very briefly. So dairy exists. Uh, mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, my copy of Needful Things in the back. Uh, uh, I don't know if uh, uh, what yours says, Cameron. Um, this is very interesting to me. Uh, the about the author page for me here. I'm just going to mm-hmm. read this to you. This I, is... I have no about the author page. OK, here. I have an original uh, Viking printing. OK, I have um, uh, a paperback that was printed probably in uh, 93 because it's got the movie tie in cover. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> Uh, about the author, Castle Rock, Maine has been the setting for several of Stephen King's most famous works, including The Dead Zone, Cujo, here's the one that uh, uh, set me off, The Tommyknockers, The Dark Half, and two novellas, The Body, which was adapted into the movie Stand By Me, and The Sun Dog. Mr. King lives in Bangor, Maine with his wife, Tabitha. So the About the Author is really an About Castle Rock section. <laughs> yeah. And also wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> at least in the in the case of The Tommyknockers. Uh... We already talked about the white and how that shows up and how important that is. Um, uh, Junction City uh, again. Uh, And then uh, aside from like very specific in-text references to the events of Dead Zone, Cujo and the Sun Dog in the body. uh, Weirdly enough, none of the short stories get referenced here, uh, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I thought for sure Ace was going because he said, I need you back by, you know, blah, blah, blah tonight or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, he says really Gaunt says really explicitly to Ace that he has to get back from um, Cambridge or wherever he is like by midnight. You know, Mm -hmm. there's 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 some fairy tale-ness to it. And I thought for sure he was going to take Mrs. Todd shortcut. I thought so, too. I thought that I was like, oh, I wonder if that's how that's going to come up. But mm, no, no. Uh, the, the one thing to note then, uh, sort of Kingiversally, that is actually more of a presentiment of stuff in the same way that the white is kind of setting stuff up. Uh, Gaunt's car is the prototype for the, the central MacGuffin of the later novel from a Buick eight, uh, which is a Hmm. similarly like impossible model of car that never seems to have actually existed. That might just be something that looks like a car, right? It might look like a car for us because there's some sort of glamor cast upon it. And it's, uh, something else entirely in reality. Uncle Stevie's mixtape, then, is the final segment in which we go through all of the songs that Stephen King has mentioned in the book that we just read, and we rate them on a scale of one to five stars. Uh, Cameron, you get the first uh, track today. Snake Oil by Steve Earle. Uh, It's fine. I'll give it three stars. It's on the same album as Copperhead Road, and it's hard to stand up against Copperhead Road. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, High and Pressurized by Hank Williams Jr. Two stars. This is kind of a boring song. Is it about being in an airplane? I don't even know. I just couldn't get into it. Like, the the Steve Earle track, like, you know, the Steve Earle sound is something I'm much more into than whatever uh, Hank Williams Jr. is up to on this one. Wow. That's that's very funny. I think I'm more of a Hank Williams Jr. than I am a a Steve Earle. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's the, are you a Beatles man? Are you an Elvis man? You know? (laughs) It's are are you are you a Hank Williams Jr. man or a Steve Earle man? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, <laughs> do you get clean or not? <laughs> um, the uh, I got Joe House Rock by Elvis. Two stars. Mm. Um, you know, I just don't I don't like this song. I'm not really a big Elvis fan, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so hard to yeah. hard to deal with it. Uh, Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen. Five stars. I think I feel like you did this to me. I feel like you got to listen to Bruce Springsteen because I had to listen to My Way by Elvis, mm-hmm. a, the, a cover of a an immaculate song. Right. Right. Yeah. Sinatra's My Way. Come on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll explain I, I, the I, thing that I did for you uh, uh, I later. I hope that it's a cover. There's no way that Elvis did My Way. First, oh, yeah. No, right? it's definitely a cover because like I think okay. I looked into this because I was like, did Elvis ever record my way and i think it's a thing mm-hmm. he only did during live shows it was like a, a you know a finale mm-hmm. encore kind of thing right elvis in vegas right kind of thing uh two stars i like uh this is a great song and it takes a lot to drag it down mm-hmm. elvis elvis accomplishes you know the king himself <laughs> accomplishes dragging this thing into the basement two stars yeah uh burning love by elvis uh five stars this is like probably one of my favorite elvis songs yeah, also, I can't believe you did this to me because this is like the good Elvis song. <laughs> uh, San Francisco by Scott McKenzie, made famous in Forrest Gump. Three stars. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, Love Makes the World Go Round by Dion Jackson. Three stars. My Mistake by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. You have Tammy Terrell on here, and maybe that's what King says, but as yeah. far as I could tell, uh, Tammy Terrell did not do this with Marvin Gaye. It was Diana Ross. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I uh, pulled that out of the book, so King was just wrong. Yeah. Uh, now, Marvin Gaye does have like a, a maybe even more than one album with Tammy Terrell, mm-hmm. so, and they duetted a lot, so maybe 
maybe that's there and I just couldn't find it, you know, in my kind of quick look. But the listen the version I listened to was Diana Ross, five stars. Marvin Gaye just kills it every time. Like he's so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just what a wonderful singer. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Diana Ross is great too. And also, this is such a great song because Diana Ross, you know, she can belt. Mm-hmm. You know, like she can make it happen. And it's a really reserved Diana Ross song. She, she a little bit sing song talking mm-hmm. actually. It's it's excellent. I I would strongly encourage you if you have not heard "My Mistake" by Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross, go check that out. It's really really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hound Dog by Elvis Presley. Three stars. I think we need more songs about yelling at dogs. Well, I got Wooden Heart by Elvis Presley, which which I gave two stars, and I'm editing right now. It's one star. Mm-hmm. This this might be one of the worst songs I've ever heard. Oh dear, I didn't even. It's re- to it. It's really bad. You oh. should check it out. Okay. Uh, I I don't understand. All right, I had My Wish Came True by Elvis. Uh, two stars. This song is boring. I got Blue Hawaii by Elvis, which is part of like the worst era of Elvis. Uh-huh. Uh, one star, like Elvis's Hawaiian hits are real bad, <laughs> real, real bad. Oh, oh. Uh, I had Bad Girls by Donna Summer. I wanted to give this one four stars because it's got like such a great dancing disco beat to it. But also yeah. I have heard this song so many times in so many commercials in so many ways uh, that uh i i just couldn't like see through it to the magic this time i guess it's really funny to me how much elvis really kind of doesn't show up in stephen king for someone of his age Mm -hmm. and then he was like i gotta write about these ladies who want to fuck elvis oh yeah i gotta put all the songs in Mm -hmm. uh i got uh uh eco eco by the dixie cups very famous song four stars it's great Mm -hmm. big party hit so uh, here is why I took all those good songs from you, because I arranged this so that I was reviewing all of the hymns. Uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Uh, I, you know, this is sung by one of the churches, uh, probably the Baptists. Uh, I listened to the Alabama recording um, and that sucked. So one star. Oof. Uh, oh, Al, you had to listen to Alabama. Talk about a talk about a, 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 a word I haven't heard in a long time, or a band name I heard in a long time. Uh, <laughs> Alabama. No, I haven't heard about that place in years. That oh. <laughs> was but a youth. Uh, for those about to rock by ACDC, just two stars. I I don't like this song. Mm. Um, I'm I'm like perfectly up on ACDC. I think they are a fine band, but uh, for those about to rock, is not. It's kind of in my bottom half, as it were, of ACDC tracks. Mm, It's no who made who, I'll tell you that. (laughs) No. Uh, I have Onward Christian Soldiers. Uh, I'm going to actually, I have a one star here. I'm going to take it down to a half star because I actually think this is one of the most irritating songs ever written. Haven't you had to review this more than one time now? Uh, Probably. I think I've also reviewed the What a Friend We Have in Jesus multiple times. (laughs) Yeah, I think Honor Christian Soldiers has come up more than one time. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. Also like a huge hit song, but I heard this so many times in the 90s that I'm just, I I don't think, I can't listen to it anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one star, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure if you hear Don't Worry, Be Happy for the first time, it might be really exciting for you, but... um, Diminishing returns. Right, like the most 90s thing about this book actually is the <laughs> fact that this song shows up. And yeah, it really does kind of like presage the decade to come. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like by 1997, Don't Worry Be Happy is everywhere for some reason. I mean, it's a much older song than that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I Ran All the Way Home by the Impalas. Three stars. This is passable. Hello, Goodbye by the Beatles. 
I'm, I'm giving it four stars. I think this is one of the better Beatles songs. Um, but what's weird about it is how it shows up in the book, which is, isn't it like written on one of Leland Gaunt's songs or uh, signs? Yes. Yeah. He, 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 like his parting words are uh, quoting the Beatles. What the fuck? I mean, you know, Paul's dead. <laughs> they're Satan. They're satanic. We know that. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's uh, that's Uncle Stevie's mixtape. That's all the songs that he felt fit to print here in the Needful Things, the show I the, the song I couldn't remember. What's the next book we're reading? Well, the next book we're reading uh, is something I'm going to talk about later, because first I'm going to talk about how if you really enjoy what we do here on mm. Just King Things, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch and you can support us. Uh, give us just a couple bucks a month. Uh, that really helps us out. But also, if you give us five dollars a month, you get access to the Just King Things bonus episodes where we discuss, uh, uh, you know, after having read a thing, uh, some sort of adaptation of the thing that we have just read, if such a thing exists exists uh or some other stephen king adaptation uh that we can slot in that feels relevant and that we can have an inter- interesting conversation about uh last month we talked about uh 1979's salem's lot tv miniseries directed by toby hooper and this month we will be discussing the film version of needful things that came out in 1993 uh and was directed by charlton heston's son what? Which is a, a I we haven't watched it and we haven't recorded <laughs> haven't on it, yet. so I yeah. don't know how this is going to go. But like this is a weird bit of trivia that I have learned is yeah, Charlton Heston's son directed the Needful Things adaptation, and it also has a uh, Max von Sydow as Leland Gaunt, which I think is you know like uh, a real gimme for the casting there. Like couldn't yeah. have set that up better, but he's great. Yeah. yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm curious to watch it. I don't think I've ever seen it before. Yeah. So uh, uh, if you like all those cool little treats uh, or you want to hear more of us talking about Stephen King stuff in the way that we talk about Stephen King stuff, then uh, head on over to patreon.com slash range touch and uh, kick us a couple dollars a month. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you already support us, I hope you enjoy those bonus episodes. But another thing you can do to help us out is tell your friends about this show recommend us to people who might like it uh because uh, we only advertise kind of on ourselves uh this is this is what we do we spread by word of mouth um and if you know absolutely nobody if you're uh, totally solitary on this earth you can at least go to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a favorable review and if you leave us a five-star review on apple Podcasts, that is also funny there is a chance that cameron will read it out loud on an episode like he's about to right now yeah, leave us five stars. We're we're sitting at four point nine out of five right now, and that's annoying. <laughs> I want to get that five. So even if you don't leave a review, get on there, slap that five up there. Uh, this is from Hawk or Handsaw. Hawk or Handsaw. Jeez, uh, five star review. Better than the best Bob Dylan song. As we all know, even the best Bob Dylan song can only get half a star. And this podcast got five stars, making it ten times better than the best Bob Dylan song. It's true. <laughs> you know, I actually really wonder. How much more opportunity am I going to get to, you know, really give Bob Dylan the business Mm -hmm. going forward? I feel like maybe Bob Dylan's like era of like ubiquity is kind of over by the 90s, right? I I mean, like Bob Dylan's still Bob Dylan. Yeah, it it was striking to me that there was no Bob Dylan in this book. I mean, uh, you can only have one. You can either have I mean, there's there's a triumvirate, right? Yeah, Uh, there is. um uh, there's Bob Dylan, of course. There's the King, and then there's uh, uh um, John Denver. 
<laughs> and you can only have one of the, you know, you, you can't have all three. Uh-huh. You, you can only have one in a book at any given moment. Right. Um, and that's like, that's like part of the writer's rules. They teach you at Clarion West <laughs> that you can only have one of those three in there. So, um, you know, I know you wouldn't know that. You didn't go to Iowa, mm-hmm. but at Iowa, they make that very clear. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, let me read a, a less, uh, that's a funny review and I enjoyed that. Let me read another review. This is from Laminated Newspaper. It's five stars. Thanks so much. Five stars, <laughs> Laminated Newspaper. Uh, that's a great name, I by the way. I was thinking that too. Yes. Good <laughs> job really on the good. name. Uh, my whole family are huge fans of Stephen King's writing, but try as I might over the years, I've never been able to get into them. Too scary and upsetting. Exclamation point. Close parentheses, period. This is uh, this is grammar after my own heart. <laughs> newspaper. This podcast has been great for understanding what draws in those who love these books without having to read the horrors firsthand. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to read it because it's a nice review. Aw, thank Some you. Some people shit on us for it. They, they say negative things and they shit on our uh, music taste that we don't like Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> really that I don't like Bob Dylan. I'm really dragging this down. But yeah. uh, got to speak my truth out here. And that's why we're at 4.9. And if you've got an Apple podcast account, or if you don't have one, you could make one, I guess. Yeah. Slap that five stars on there. It really helps out. Yeah. And we're at 300 ratings, which is great. Let's get more ratings, please. Mm-hmm. That would be excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so next time in a month, we will reconvene to discuss the next book in our little uh, uh, roster here. And that will be 1992's Gerald's Game. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. I, I, I've read this, but similar to Needful Things, read it one time and never checked it yeah. checked it out again. So uh and I guess for the bonus ode, we are watching the miniseries. Uh, it's not a miniseries, it's just a film. Oh, I thought it was I thought it was like a like a couple pieces. That's interesting. Yeah. It's Mike Flanagan, yeah, right? Mike Flanagan true? direct to Netflix. So this is gonna be our first uh time uh oh, directly yeah. directly crossing paths with with the flan as as we call him. Uh <laughs> is that what we call it what I, that's, we? What, that's what, I, that's what you call it oh i'm gonna pull out the discord logs here <laughs> i thought you were gonna call it the flan man yeah i i, I assert i assume that like, but uh yeah i'm not super i mean i'm familiar with flanagan and, and uh fits and bursts but not you know because he is his own media entity at this point mm-hmm. and uh, i'm curious about digging in and i think that yeah this you said this was the first one so i haven't seen it before and i think we're working on getting a guest um, but I, I don't have any data to share on that at this juncture. Yeah. Yeah, we will find out, but that's the book we will be reading. Uh, it's a very different book for King, uh, and we'll talk about that, uh, and how it's different. And we'll also have some thoughts, uh, on account of the method for how it's different because we're in fact reading mm-hmm. these in order. And so that produces certain outcomes for us, uh, right. looking forward to that. And we will discuss the, the film adaptation, uh, in a month. So... Why are we doing it, Cameron? Why do we keep doing it? We're doing it for Steve. 